In this episode, I sat down with Kawa Malai. He's a uh, former Green Beret and now currently a consultant for the military as well as a, an instructor with his own firearms instruction group called Two Alpha Training Group. If you weren't familiar with Kawa before, maybe you'll recognize him from the recent feature film directed by Guy Ritchie called The Covenant. Now, when I sat down with Kawa, I had a pretty good idea of where he was coming from, from an instruction perspective. I've heard him talk plenty of times, been following him on Instagram for quite some time, and I know guys that know him. But there was a lot of questions that I had for Kawa about his background outside of firearms instruction, and we dig deep into some of those things. Admittedly, at the end, he said, look, we covered a lot of stuff that maybe people have heard before, but we covered a ton of stuff that's actually never been covered. So I'm anxious for you guys to listen to this one and get a little bit better idea of who Kawa is. You know, the older kids taught me a lesson early in life, and that was snitches get stitches. We kids wanted things we said and did in the absence of outside eavesdropping eyes and ears to remain private and secure within our little neighborhood tribe. After all, this information was private, and we were sworn to keep it secure so it didn't get exploited in the wrong hands. Nowadays, my private information has expanded beyond that little group of bike-riding marauders and now sits available on all my electronic devices. And that makes me feel pretty uneasy, especially after having my phone and personal accounts hacked and taken advantage of. The reality for you and me is our laptops are never really off. Our phones hold our entire lives, including family and work, and everything from credit cards to passports contain RFID. All of this effectively makes those little items little snitches. And this makes us all vulnerable to having our digital lives stolen. It's time to put a stop to that. And this is where Silent comes in. That's S-L-N-T. Silent offers a range of sleek RFID-blocking wallets, EDC Faraday bags, travel gear, laptop sleeves, and key fob cases with the added protection of their patented Silent Pocket Faraday cage technology. This elite signal-blocking technology is the easiest way to instantly enhance your peace of mind around how your mobile devices are screwing your digital life up. My personal favorites are the Silent Faraday phone and laptop sleeve. They give me peace of mind by allowing me to completely disconnect from anything incoming and or outgoing, including things that can negatively impact my financial, physical, psychological, and emotional health. So if you're looking for a solution to reclaiming your personal privacy, security, and health, go check out silent.com. That's S-L-N-T.com. You can follow them at GoSilent on Instagram and Twitter, and then use the code IRONSITES at checkout for an exclusive discount. If you've been listening to the show, you've heard me talk about BioPro Plus. It's a non-synthetic alternative to prescription HGH hormone treatments. I get to basically experience the benefits of my own natural HGH, and I don't have to worry about any needles, any doctor appointments, or any weird side effects. The best part about this was is it started working super fast for me. I'm talking days, not weeks, and it's 100% safe. So... The process to get BioPro Plus was super easy. I just ordered a 30-day supply of a nighttime and a daytime formula or morning formula. I hold this stuff under my tongue for about 90 seconds before I swallow it. Right away, I noticed changes. One of the biggest things that came up for me was my recovery time improved. A couple other things I wasn't mad about. My libido went through the roof and my sleep was markedly better. Another downstream benefit of all the things that I mentioned My body fat continues to to drop, and I haven't really changed that much about my lifestyle, my workouts, or my nutrition program. It's been pretty shocking. Listen, if you're interested in getting started on BioPro Plus, it's super easy. You can go get your 30-day supply by going to bioproteintech.com, or you can simply follow them at bioproteintech and follow the links there. When you get there, use code IRONSIGHTS for $30 off your order. 
Welcome to Iron Sights After Dark. During my 25 plus years in the fitness industry, I've always been passionate about expanding my physical, mental, and hard skills to be prepared for whatever life might throw at me. From fitness to firearms and beyond, taking a holistic approach to being prepared has led me on a journey to seek and share both knowledge and skills from expert resources in the civilian, LEO, military, and first responder communities. The mission of this podcast is to help others expand their capabilities and knowledge of preparedness while building strength in the community that shares similar goals and values. So ultimately, we contribute together and grow together. We, we got the dude. We got him in the house. Like uh, We were just talking downstairs um, about how this came together, and we were, there was some back and forth, and like, hey, regionally, like we're in very different places, and how, how do we get together? And then it just so happens that uh, we're, here for, we're here in Southern California right now for the California Range Weekend sort of workup right. for the event that happens in November. You're here. I'm here. I'm like, dude, let's get together for a couple hours. And you made it happen. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome, dude. I, I was excited to hear that you're going to be here because, again, like you said, I was trying to figure out the logistics of getting up to you with everything I have going on this summer. And I told Martin, I was like, man, this might not happen until like August if we don't. And then yeah. when I figured out when I figured out that you were here, I was like, then perfect. Let's make it happen. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I'm glad it worked out, man, because otherwise it'll probably have been CRW if we didn't. I, I'm feeling that way too. I, there's a chance I could be making, you know, a trip down to or out through the Texas region in the fall, but nothing's planned. I'm just trying to get sure. through months, the next couple of months here. But nonetheless, we're here. I have so many questions for you. Uh, there's, <laughs> okay. you know, I've been I've been a, a follower and a fan for a long time. Uh, you know, when I came sort of came into the let's just say firearms training space and you know, start taking courses and things myself. You were one of those guys that was like right up there. I mean, from a, from a presence perspective and, uh, you know, as a new guy coming in, there's a lot of compare and contrast and you're looking at guys, you have an interesting background. There's a, there's a very specific delivery that you're making. Uh, people seem to know and like you. And so as a new guy coming in, I was like this, okay, so I gotta, I gotta pay attention to this guy. Sure. There's been a lot of influence from you, uh, you know, on me over time. And a lot of the people that we've talked to and your name comes up a lot. So this is, this is kind of like surreal for me. So I appreciate you being here, dude. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, I, I am truly humbled by everything you just said, because, uh, I like being a member of this community. I think we have a strong community, especially here in SoCal. Mm. In fact, I think SoCal is probably the strongest community I've come across in the entire country when it comes to the shooting gun community, right? Whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, I love being a member of that, especially here in SoCal. We've always had a strong footprint here because I've been here for the longest time and made a lot of friends and, and a huge network. And it's nice to it's nice to see the people that I'm teaching here in SoCal going to other instructors. And like I, we have like this whole network here that I've never really seen anywhere else. And that's why it's so impressive because the same students will go to all these different instructors. And it's like they've almost kind of brought the instructors together. Uh, mm. and now you see instructors from outside of California coming in to join in because they just, once you teach here, you realize how strong this community is, how tight knit it is. And, and, uh, and you're going to fill classes here in Cali guys. That's just the bottom line. <laughs> you just nailed, you just nailed it. And I don't know that I've ever actually, I, nobody's ever articulated it to me like that, but, and I don't know what I've really thought about that. What you said there that really struck me was that the, it's almost like the students, the community has brought the instructors together, yeah. not the opposite. And actually, I think you're right on with that. 
the, the instructors have to be open to this a little bit, but at the same time, they recognize the strength. And as I've been traveling around much more this year and getting into other areas of the country and talking with other instructors that that live literally on the other end of the country but do come here on occasion, mm-hmm. they've said the same thing about the California, particularly Southern California gun culture right. and the community in and of itself and how strong it is. Um, yeah, and so going back, like you were a big part of that uh, for 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 a very long time. Uh, I know recently you've you've relocated, but what is so? Uh, this is a question because I think you could probably speak better to it than most people. Usually it's, I ask instructors that are constructing from somewhere else and coming in, but you're a guy that was here for a long time and you've gone and reached out. What do you think it is? Like, what do you think it is about the California shooter, right? And this community here. And again, I, I stress Southern California. However, Northern California is really starting, we're starting to bridge that gap. Yeah, There are guys up there, uh, lots of guys up here there that are like coming to like the CRW event or come down here to take from instructors. And we're watching now instructors go up from SoCal yeah. to NorCal and do stuff. But what do you think it is about California specifically that makes it that way? I think there's a couple of things uh, that we have to consider. Uh, one, obviously we're behind enemy lines together. Mm-hmm. So there's like this sense of camaraderie. There's, sense, there's a sense of like... Um, that we need to be on the same page somehow. Like there doesn't need to be like an organization or mm-hmm. something like that put together. There doesn't really need to be some kind of like campaign. It's just that the, I think the California shooters and the shooting community here are very tight because we know that we're in this together. We're all probably felons together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so we have like that, that, that bond there. Uh. I think there's a couple other things too, though. California is a beautiful place geographically. Like it's just the weather's always nice. Uh, so people can just go shoot all year long. Mm-hmm. The ranges here in California, for most of you people that are not from California, the SoCal ranges specifically are so open-minded and friendly with uh, with instructors coming in to teach, with people shooting, with events like California Range Weekend that it's really blown my mind. And I didn't appreciate uh, that relationship that I've had with SoCal Ranges here uh, until I got to like Texas. Because mm. now I'm trying to establish a network with the Texas Ranges, especially the outdoor outdoors ones. And it's so tough, man. There's such FUDs really? when it comes to their rules. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, like it's like day and night, you know, between SoCal. Because in SoCal, I could do whatever I wanted. If I went to Borough or if I went to California Tactical Academy or if I went to Prado, uh, you know, I, I could do whatever I wanted. Like, they were like, yeah, you want to shoot and move? You want to do some vehicle stuff? You want to do some low-life stuff? Yep. Then I got to Texas and I was like, they're like, no, you can't do any of that. Wow. I'm just like, wow. So there is like, I think there's, when I say a couple of things, it's it's obviously like the geographical location here is, it's nice and a lot of people come here and we have like this hodgepodge mentality of people that come from all over the place yep. and we find ourselves, right? We find our community. Like I, a lot of the students that I talk to here in Cali or I've taught, are not originally from California. They're from like Ohio. They're transplants. Or like yeah, they're mm-hmm. transplants. And so they got here and they found like their sense of community amongst like-minded folks. You know, folks that could not just, not are not the same like-minded, but could elevate them and, you know, take them, take them to the next level. So I, I kind of got long-witted with your answer, but... No, I think it's great. I think the overall culture here in SoCal, because we do have, despite, you know, what you think of California, especially SoCal with the whole liberal type thing, there's a strong sense of like conservatism here with the people in the cities, in LA, in Irvine, in San Diego, right? And so we find ourselves and we find ourselves through the events like California Range Weekend, 
but also instructors who are known in the area, like myself and some of the others, like Mike Knockout Lights and some of these yeah. other guys. And I think knowing that these instructors are local, we tend to like are able to like hang on to these instructors and find out when their classes are. And then same thing for instructors. We get to know our students and we know we'll see them next month or two months from now. And so it's like this perpetual cycle where we keep each other going. And it's hard to kind of explain, but I just don't see that anywhere else in the country. Interesting. It's very hard to... Yeah, the cross-pollination is definitely something that I thought was kind of normal until I've kind of traveled around because I've heard this before. A couple things like I, I... I have with like, I guess this is the follow-up question is when we talk about other instructors coming into California and and teaching what I hear, and this is, I guess, again, we're behind enemy lines. We've just learned how to function here, you know, with all the different things that we face from law perspective or from um, like a a cultural perspective. And I think you mentioned it, like there is a, a strong sense of conservatism here. I think people are way more, you know, when you start to look at like the sociopolitical or, you know, the financial aspects of politics and how people kind of view those things. I think like sociopolitically, we're definitely like, you're going to find a like a, a very, very, like, I guess I want to say specific conservatism to this. And then obviously in California is, you know, everybody thinks about California. It's obviously not right at the right. same time, but there's a middle ground there. Cause you have, I think you have an extreme on a, on, a, on either end of this. Yeah. And there's a middle ground. I think that's where most people actually fall into, you know, socially politically, we're maybe a little bit more liberal than a lot of other States, but from like a financial or fiscal perspective, we're a lot more conservative. And then when it comes to our constitutional rights, I think there's a lot more people that are more constitutionalists than most people would believe. And I yeah. think when you get out there on the range, like it's the roots of that, that keep people together. Like, look, dude, I, I don't care where you're coming from or what you're doing. Like we're here today. This is what we're doing. We believe strongly in our second amendment. The reasons for doing that, we're out to have fun. We're out to, we're out to learn. We're out to be, you know, part of this community. And we put all that other stuff aside. And I think that's tough for people to imagine living in other parts of the country where they are. I'll just use the word more segregated, um, in their kind of, um, uh, factions, you know, like I only hang out with these people. Yes. Uh, you, you probably have that opportunity. You could, you could formulate that here in California. It's very hard because there's so many people, you know, yeah. the population density is so high. Like you're, you have to learn how to deal with all the stuff all the time. I think, I think you nailed it, man. Cause like here, like you said, if I went to Texas, unless I was teaching somewhere like in Austin, most of the folks that I'm teaching are very kind of on the right side of things. Sure. Right. Versus the left. Uh, and if I went to Austin, I could probably find that too. What I like about California is kind of like you said, there is there is this big gray area or middle ground between both sides where people come together and enjoy this skill set or enjoy this mm-hmm. hobby for some people, right? Uh, and I never, we never, I don't know any instructor that's going to be like, hey, so what's your political aff- affiliation? You know, it's like, no, Nobody dude, cares. you showed up, you showed up with the right gear. Obviously, you have some experience in what you're doing. You have the ammo. You're here to learn. And that's it. Like, I don't care what you believe. And I think because of that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the different factors that make California unique is we have kind of uh, pushed our political affiliations to the side to some degree and our personal beliefs and stuff to the side to some degree. And we have come together because we all enjoy shooting or training or whatever aspect Mm -hmm. of this skill set that we enjoy. We just put everything else to the side and then we shake hands and then we leave at the end of the day. Right. You know, and that guy could have been complete opposite of what I am, but it doesn't matter because for that day, we're all the same people. 
Um, I think that's such a good point to, to bring up. I, I, this was the follow-up question because when I'm talking to other instructors outside, you know, that in, in, in they're hearing, hey, the, the, the community and, and the shooter, shooting, the quality of shooter, sorry, in California is generally very high. You know, people practice and they, they have more access to instructors and they mm-hmm. cross-pollinate. So they learn all these different things. They get exposed to all these different things. More things than I think most people would, would, would imagine is, is available. But my, the question is this. When I talk to them, they're very hesitant about traveling here with firearms. Right, they're like the, as if, and I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate anybody, or you know, th- this is just, this is just me saying this. As if you're going to get off the airplane, right, and you know you're going to be pulled over immediately, and your <laughs> shit's going to get run through, yeah, right? And you're going to go, yeah, you're going to go to, you're going to go to jail. Um, look, that is a legit concern, like, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the world and a we, legit possibility and a legit possibility it's, there. It's definitely within the realm of possibility, yeah. uh, but it's just not what we're seeing. It's not the truth of the matter. And there's certainly ways around it. I mean, when, when we're looking at it, like, look, you, you, suppressors in California are a thing. They're very foreign. Like if I walked out on the range today, even if there's, there's a dude out there with an SOT and he's got a suppressor on or whatever, that's very, for most, for the 99% of the population here, that would be very foreign and they'd be enamored by it. Like, oh, that's one of those things, right? Yeah. So we just don't have those here. You know, you just yeah. don't see a lot of them. There are people that have them legally. Sure. They can have them. They can carry them. They can sell them. Uh, we have those. But that that being an example, well, if that's what you're, if that's your only worry, well, then just leave it at home. Yeah. Come shoot unsuppressed. But I, again, like there's this concern. I wonder like what you're what your thoughts are on that. And if you've talked to other instructors and what those conversations have been like about like, look, dude, if that's your concern, like don't worry about that. Cause that's not an issue. Yeah. There's always, I think we always have to be prepared for the worst, meaning that we need to have our, our ducks lined up. Like when we travel with firearms, we need to be ready for the heaviest of scrutiny. You know, when they open up your case and they see that brace or they see that mm-hmm. it's an SBR, not a rifle, what what is your answer for that? You know, like so you took the risk of bringing this gun into mm-hmm. into Cali, and now you don't have a, a good way to explain it. And so for the most part, but I'm also kind of like on the side of I'm I'm kind of like siding with the the extreme kind of caution, right? Like cases that we don't we just don't see. I travel with with firearms, just like most instructors travel with firearms. Nothing about Cali changes. Uh, the way you travel with firearms, but there are some considerations as to what you should bring with you. If you do have an SBR or if you do have a uh, a pistol brace, I would probably bring like a Magpul or something like mm-hmm. a, a set a set pistol uh, uh, buttstock with you, um, you know, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but again, the chances of you getting stalked by some CHP guy or whatever is just not going to happen. Yeah. It's just not. And the chances of you being on a range with, let's say, an SBR. And getting caught by somebody, it's just not going to that, happen. That's even less than I think than the, yeah. like the CHP, you know, example. Like I, when, when we're out there, it's like nobody, uh, again, is there a possibility? Of course. Yes, there is. But this is just not, this is just not the, yeah. the case. I, I mean, I've been stopped by CHP too. And uh, they've asked me if I have guns in the vehicle. And I say yes. And I show it to them. Uh, and they're like, can I see it? And I'm like, well, a couple, you know, two of them are locked up, but I'll show you the one that's not. You know, and I show him the pistol and he sees it all decked out with like a red dot and like, you know, this, that and the other. And he's like, oh, dude, that's cool. He's better than what he's got. Yeah. Right? And like next thing you know, we're on the side of the five talking, talking about, about training, talking about pistols and guns yeah. for like 10 minutes, you know. Uh, but I mean, you can get that guy that's going to be a dick sure. and like and give you a hard time. But I, again, it just there's coming to California with guns too easy. It's, it's but like 
depending, considering what guns you want to bring with you and also what's your reason in right. case uh, in case you do get stopped. It's yeah. not going to be a TSA, though. It's not going to be at the airport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. You, you're chuckling about it. It's the same yeah. thing. They have no idea what they're looking well, at. Well, they're there. not they're not yeah. looking for it. No. Yeah. Because it already got checked from the airport that you took off from. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm glad we went down that route because you can talk to it a little bit different level. I just, again, it's something that's come up lately and you were talking about how instructors are coming out from the outside of California in. And I think that's so important for, for California, but I also think it's so important for the culture in general that we continue to cross pollinate that way and not look at it. Like there's these dividing lines you said, and I believe this, I say this all the time. We are behind the wall here. We're behind yeah. enemy lines in, in, in a way. This is a very different state with regard to how it looks at that politically and even from a legal perspective now. But there's a lot of noise in, in like there's a lot of noise that comes out of California when it comes to guns. And I think that's what scares folks that are not from California, especially instructors, because they hear all this noise coming from California mm -hmm. with Newsom trying to do this and like that and the other. And so a lot of people are like, dude, I am not going anywhere near California with guns. But you have to understand that despite all that noise, the community itself here is one that is very supporting and one that's very open to outside instructors coming in mm -hmm. and they will sign up for your courses. You guys just need to get here uh, and, and think about, think about, you know, the community here and how they may, uh, they may want you out here, you know, but, but you are letting, again, this noise kind of deter you from coming here because the California does make a lot of anti-gun noise. Newsom just makes a lot of anti-gun noise. And he does it for a reason, yep. right? He's trying to keep people out. Um, but again, strongest shooting community here in SoCal, you're just, it's just not going to get any better. If yeah. you want to fill classes, come here, guys. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, doesn't, yeah. It won't be hard. It won't be hard. That's, the, that's also the, uh, we move on, but that's also the upside of all the cross-pollination of, yeah. you know, like nobody's just taking a, courses from one instructor around here. No. They have options and they're encouraged to do so by other instructors. These are loyal, loyal students, man. Uh, like these are yeah. students that want to train. Like uh I have so many students that have come to several classes of mine that we're all friends with. Like we have signal chat groups and we have like all kinds of chat groups now with all these students. Mm -hmm. Uh and they want you guys to come here. Um but also there's a lot of new shooters here that need instruction. And uh, I mean, there are so many people that were on like left-leaning, you know, people that were anti-gun. But with this whole like COVID thing mm -hmm. that happened over the last two years with jobs being lost and crime going rampant and all this stuff, a lot of liberals, a lot of people on the left started buying guns and they were looking for instruction. Um, and like, yes, they can get instruction from all these ranges out here. But again, they, it takes for like you legitimate, credible instructors to come out here and really get them down this journey, not mm -hmm. some NRA guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, we know all about um, that. Yeah, yeah, uh, man. Thanks for handling that with me. Uh, let's let's circle back to like we talked. We started right in with the California stuff. Uh, you're a California kid, you know, for a long time, but you didn't. That's not where things started for you, right? I mean, you have an interesting story, and I want to get into this uh, a little bit, if you don't mind, just kind of your background and, yeah. and your upbringing and how that plays into later in life and your career through the military and then what you're doing now and how you're addressing stuff. Um, so maybe we can yeah. circle it back and just, yeah. you know, all the way back to the beginning. I'll go back to the beginning. <laughs> and, and, and again, like I, we, I, I always start with the guests, like, man, I don't want to ask any questions that are going to bore you that you have to tell the story. But what you said, it, again, is there's maybe a lot of people that don't understand the story or haven't heard it. So you have to tell it to give context. And so there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that don't know. Yeah. So um, for those of that have heard it, 
hang in there. Maybe we'll cover some stuff that you didn't already know about. Yeah, him. yeah. You uh, can fast forward to this but, part. But uh, let's let's hear it, man. Start and stop wherever you want. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Um, well, so you know, I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan. I was born there in '78, um, and in the late '70s is also when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, and so that whole war kicked off. Uh, as it was kind of inching closer to, and closer to Kabul, my family decided that we need to leave. Like, this is not a safe place to be, especially since our family was so big. I had six uncles and like three aunts and, you know, like they all had kids. And so we were a large family. Um, and you were in Kabul. I was in Kabul, yeah. And what's the family doing? Like, is there a family business? Like, what's the occupation? Like, what what are the kids doing at the time? What's, yeah, what's going thank on you. there? Uh, so mainly my dad's side was all military. Okay. Uh, like my grandfather, like my dad, my dad was in the military, but then my, my grandfather was like career military, like a full bird colonel. Like I have a picture of him, like on a battle horse, like all decked out, like getting ready to charge into a, so you're, you you were born in 78, 78. Okay. And so grandfather is going to be, you know, what, 60, 70 years, your senior. So we're back at the early 1900s. I mean, he was, uh, mid 1920s. Yeah. 1920s ish. And then from there on, uh, but I mean, he was, yeah, career guy. Okay. Colbert Colonel. And when I saw his picture, he was, I think like in that picture, I think he was a Colonel uh, on his horse. And that's the only picture I've have, I have of him. Um, on his horse. On his horse. Yeah. It's looking I, like I, a badass. So like real quick, and this is what's so interesting to me is, you know, I don't think a lot of people, particularly here in the United States now, um, like our youth, because they just don't teach the stuff in history class, the history of, of Afghanistan mm-hmm. and the fact that it's been a war-torn country for millennia. Right. I mean, it's just been one thing after another. That country's been, and the people there have been caught in the middle for hundreds, hundreds of years. Right. And the time period that you're talking about in 78, I mean, 73, I think. It was about, I was born in 75. I think it was 73 is when uh, basically there was a long standing monarch rule that had happened for a while. And then there was, that was overthrown. Right. And things got really wild and it got really unstable there real fast. Yeah. So about 80 years under the King. That's right. Yeah. About 80 years of peace under the King. And that was probably the longest stint in modern times for, for a, that country a period of peace to be in Afghanistan with no fighting. And yeah. And so then at, in that time you're talking about as a kid in 78 or when your parents are starting to, to look at this going, there was, everybody's looking at, Afghanistan as a target at this point. They're weak. They've been weakened, right? And yeah. There's- Afghanistan has always been a target. Historically, if you guys really want to know the history of Afghanistan, there's a really good book you should read by Stephen Tanner called The Military History of Afghanistan from Alexander the Great to the Taliban. It used, okay. to, be, it used to be titled the, To the Fall of the Taliban, but he prematurely titled that. So his second and third editions were to the, basically to the Taliban. So look up Stephen Tanner, really good book. It goes back to Alexander the Great and his conquest of Afghanistan and how he almost died in the Hindu Kush mountains. And most of his army got, you know, killed from malnutrition and the weather. And then, but like, it talks about, uh, it talks about the elephant armies from India. It talks about Attila the Hun. It talks about Genghis Khan, Khan, Tamerlane, the Russians, the Anglo-Saxons, the first British war, the second British. Like it talks about Afghanistan in great depth when it comes to the military history, but it also, you understand why Afghanistan was such a a key piece of terrain for any military that was trying to take it. Uh, In fact, uh, there was a colonel from a British military that said, uh, you can take Afghanistan overnight. 
the country can be yours overnight, but it'll take you, it'll take you a millennia to hold, you know, like you'll never be able to hold this country just because it's too tribal. The people here, before you got here, before you occupied, they were fighting each other. And now when there's a foreign occupier, they come together and they say, hey, truce for now. Let's fight the the foreign invader okay. and then we'll go back to doing our thing. And that's just how it is. Anytime Afghanistan has been invaded by a foreign country, those tribes have come together to fight. And when that when they kick them out, then there's a little bit of peace and transition, but then they go right back, right to, back fighting. to fighting inside. Because that's just how Afghanistan is, man. And so Afghanistan is obviously used to fighting and they're used to foreign invaders. Uh, and if you look at the people of Afghanistan, you can see it in their faces. You can see it in the way they carry themselves every day. They're like, yeah, we know there's fighting in and around us, but we live this our is, lives. This is our way of life. Yeah, we just live our lives. We don't care who the president is. We don't care what Taliban commander is in charge. We don't care what SF team is right there. Next, right there. Does None of that matters because their entire world is inside those walls. Mm. You know, so their imam is not only their the head of their mosque, but he's also the camp mayor or the city mayor, or he's like the, the village elder. He's also the educator. You know, he's the one that, that marries everybody. And like, so he is like the guy, you know, and then they have kind of some of the other elders. And go a few That's miles, a few miles this way. And there's another one. You could be outside of Kabul, the Kabul city limits and ask who's the president. And they, they may say, I don't know. And I don't care. Wow. Like the guy's right there. You know, <laughs> it's like, That's imagine being, in Alexandria and say, who's the president in D.C.? And the people in Alexandria is like, don't know. Don't know. Don't, don't care. care. Could you imagine that? That's, no. That's crazy, right? It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But that's Afghanistan. It's tribal and it always will be tribal. So you're, 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 you're again, so there's a lineage of military history here in, a, in, a, in, the, in the country. So your, your folks are looking, are going, go back to the families, like we got to, it's time for us to get yeah, out of here. Yeah, yeah. So again, my dad's side was mainly military. My mom's side were bankers though. Okay. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was in charge of uh, the like head bank in Kabul. Um, and so he mm-hmm. ran that bank. And then most of my mom's side were like either like clerks or, you know, some some staff, you know, in, at the bank. And that's what they did. And these were times where and you say, you know, there is, uh, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, right before the Russians invaded, there was this long period of peace. And you're right. Afghanistan was a beautiful, modernized country before the Russians invaded. There was cars on the road. There was motorcycles. Men were in suits, clean shaven. The mm-hmm. women had their hair did. Nice, uh, you know, nice outfits, makeup, uh, heels. I mean, it looked like something out of like 1950s, 1960s America, mm-hmm. you know. And then obviously when the Russians invaded, there was, you know, it, it kind of blew them back to the Stone Ages. But, but Afghanistan was also very touristy. Like a lot of people would tour Afghanistan come to Afghanistan to see all the beautiful terrain and all these different mm-hmm. cities from Europe and from America and from all these places. So, I mean, it was on the road to a good place before that happened. Uh, but it was almost like, was it really going to happen? Because we'll never given, know. Given our history. We'll never know, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so then we left. We decided we it was time to go. And the thing that really expedited uh, us leaving was my father getting killed. And he got, he got killed by Russian, uh, soldiers. And then that's when we were like, all right, we got to get out of here now. And so we picked up and left and my grandfather made a few trips to get all of us out of the country. We, I think we went, uh, into Pakistan and maybe in India, I forget either, either Pakistan or India. We settled there for like six, seven months waiting for our paperwork to get cleared for, to mm-hmm. go to the U S mm-hmm. 
And so back then it was a lot easier to get to the U.S., not like it is now. And so I think it took us like six or eight months in either Pakistan or India. How many of there are you that, that, are, that ultimately make the trip? So outside of two uncles, um, the two uncles that went to Germany, uh, everybody else made it. And I mean, we're probably looking like 15, 16 people maybe. Wow. wow. Yeah, because again, big family, some kids. My grandfather had to make four trips. His last trip was, uh, one of his last trips, not his last trip, was myself, uh, my mom, my younger sister, who was just a newborn, and then two of my youngest uncles. Because in Afghanistan back then, if you were 15, you had to serve at least two years in the military. Okay. Both my uncles were 15, 16, and so we couldn't just leave them behind, and we couldn't just let them hang out for people to see because they would have got pulled off. So my grandfather put them in rice crates, put rice bags over their heads in the back of the bus, Whoa. and we got through checkpoints like that. Whoa. <laughs> so they wouldn't get pulled off. Whoa. Well, then that's just part of the problem was the military checkpoints. The other part of the problem was the Mujahideen checkpoints because the Mujahideen checkpoints, they're also like recruiting. Yeah. yeah, again, this goes back to the history and what's going on in the country at the time and yeah. so forth. And, so. And if the, the Mujahideen guys, in case you guys don't know, a brief kind of summary of the Mujahideen was basically imagine just guerrilla fighters, Afghan guerrilla fighters that didn't trust the Afghan military, but also were fighting the Russians because, you know, well, just like any patriot, this was their home and this was their country and they don't want to fight with the government, but they will fight the enemy on their own. Mm -hmm. And so that was the Mujahideen and the Mujahideen basically turned into the Taliban later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but that's how they started, whereas freedom fighters. But they also had checkpoints, and they were like, hey, like, these two are old enough to come fight for us. So that was a scare as well. Right. So and they're handling in, things a bit differently there. And they're yeah. handling things a bit differently, yeah. Well, they also pulled my grandfather off the bus and put an AK to his head. Wow. Because my grandfather, being a banker and being in a nicer suit, clean-shaven, he they thought that he was part of the Communist Party because of how he looked. And he's like, no, dude, I'm a banker. Here's my paperwork. But he also gave up like a ton of money for them. And then on top of that, they came into, they came onto the bus and I guess they were like, they were wanting donations from everybody and they saw the rice crates in the back and they're like, hey, we want half the, we half want the, the rice. He was like, all right, you guys stay here. I'll go get them. And so he's like lifting rice bags over his holy, son's head. Holy crap. Mujahideen flyers. So they wouldn't go back there. That's but intense. Now he did that four times, you know, and I only know the story that my mom told me from our trip, you know, him getting pulled off and all that. And I could imagine what he went through for those other three trips trying to get his And this, this is just trying to get to Pakistan. This is just trying to get out of Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. And she's, um, but after that, I mean, that was it. Like we, we did a short stint. Uh, waiting for the paperwork to get cleared. And then once we got the paperwork cleared, we actually went to Lincoln, Nebraska of all places. I don't know why, but that's where I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And, um, uh, and you know, Lincoln being a small kind of college football town in, in Nebraska, not the greatest place to be, but also just a really good place to raise a family back then. So I was misunderstood. I thought you came here as a kid. So you went to Nebraska. Yeah, no, okay. California came later in my okay, life. Okay, got you. Okay. Mm -hmm. But right. I did most of my... Growing up in Lincoln, I uh, went to high school there, I went to college there and everything. And then, and then the Marine Corps brought me to California. Okay. So, yeah. wow. That's, so when you get there to, how old are you when you finally make it to Nebraska? I was maybe four. Yeah. So very four, young. Maybe, you're very young. Four, maybe five. How's the family integrating into, you know, Western culture when they, when they arrive? Was that really tough? It wasn't something that I really grasped until I got older. But some of, like one of my f f earliest memories uh, coming 
into America was we, I was, we were standing at a line at a Goodwill waiting to get like sheets and pillowcases and stuff. Uh, that's my, one of my earliest memories. I guess we didn't have that stuff or I guess maybe we were like taking handouts. I don't know. But like we were, I remember it was a goodwill because I remember the sign. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like we walked away with like a bunch of sheets and blankets and pillowcases and some other stuff like brand new, you know, and they gave it to us and then we left. Um, you know, so, but like growing up here, seeing my family adjusting was pretty typical of like just a foreign family that just migrated here. And now they're trying to make it, you know, and like my uncles went and got jobs and my mom tried to get a job and like, none of them really speak good English, you know? So now they're all taking like English courses mm-hmm. a couple of times a week at some college campus somewhere to try to get schooled up. And at the same time, they're trying to work. And it was a struggle. Like it was a struggle, not for my sister and I, obviously we went to school and like, we picked up English very quickly. And so we, you know, very we young. made fun. Yeah. yeah. So like, us growing up as Afghans, like immigrant Afghans, was really not even a thing, you know, to be mentioned because it was like any other kid being accepted. Um, but like I could imagine how my family was probably having a little harder time I'm sure, you know, I mean, dealing with society and dealing with people and dealing with the language and culture that they've haven't really experienced before. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what Lincoln, Nebraska was like in the late seventies, early eighties either. I mean, that's it's I mean I don't know. I've never been to Lincoln. Yeah. I know about the Cornhuskers, you know, yeah. Out there yeah, and, yeah. you know, and all that stuff, but that's about it. But, uh, I, so you, you grow up as a kid, but here's the interesting thing. So you, you go to, you go to, you go to high school or, or sorry, you go to school, you go to college in Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you ultimately enlist in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to, I went to call, I wanted to join the Marine Corps out of high school, but my mom, Oh, yeah, we got to talk about this because well, my mom you just was... told a story about getting the hell out of like a war-torn country, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? And now you're talking about joining your, you know, the U.S. military. Well, so that goes back to like just me growing up in this country and then also becoming old enough to understand where we came from and why we left. Uh, understand that whole, like just, you know, that picture was painted for me. So now I'm like, oh, this is why we're here and this is why we left because we literally could have been killed any day, you know? So... Uh, but once I understood that, then I really started appreciating here. I started appreciating our quality of life here, our freedoms here. Like the fact that we could just go out and do whatever we wanted and no one would say anything where that was not the case in Afghanistan. Women couldn't even go out in Afghanistan without having a full burqa on because the Taliban would beat you. Even if they saw your ankles, they would sit there and beat you with a stick. So when I learned about stuff like that, yeah, I had this, I had this really like, um, sense of gratitude for being here in this country. And then I was like, well, how can I pay back? I want to do something. And the military just runs in my blood, man. You know, it just runs in my genes. And so I knew that I wanted to join the military. I just didn't know where, how, what, but I wanted to join after I did all my research, I wanted to join the Marine Corps out of high school. And I knew I wanted to go infantry. I knew my family would never buy off on that. And, uh, but I told my mom, I was like, Hey, out of high school, like I want to join the, Mar- or the Marine Corps. And she was like, no, she was like, no, she was like, I'm not even gonna discuss this with you. She's like, we're not even talking about this until you go to college, finish college. And then we'll talk about this. And I was like, really? She, was she hoping, <laughs> was she hoping you just forget about it or you grow, you grow just, out of that phase? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she was hoping that I would like, you know, go to college and then get some boring nine to five somewhere. Um, but that's what I did, man. Obviously I respect for her. I did that and I went to school and, but when I was getting ready to finish school, 
I still had that that like, that burn, you know. I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Okay. And so, you know, after after college, I told my mom, I was like, hey, I'm going into Marine Corps. Like, I'm not asking for permission. I'm just telling you, like, I'm going. There's nothing going on. It's the year 2000. Okay. Nothing going on. Pre 9-11. I'll go do a couple of years. I'll get out, you know, maybe go to grad school or something like that. Right. And again, for me, it was just like, how do I pay back to this country? It wasn't like, this is the, a career. I want to make this a career. It was okay. like, how do I pay back because of what we've been giving? And also me growing up or us growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska, back in the 80s was amazing. Like people were nice. There was no, not once did I catch like a sense of racism or people stereotyping me or anything like that. I mean, Nebraska in its in general, is just such a great state. The people there are so down to earth and so friendly and they don't care where you're from or what you look like. There are parts of Nebraska that that's not the case, that's obviously. You're going to have that anywhere, man. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's just, but like when you get to Lincoln and Omaha, I mean, these are big college ta- college football towns that love their players and oh, yeah. they don't care it's what color fo- skin you are and they don't care life. what religion yeah. you are. It's yeah. football, dude. Football's life. And so that was also part of the reason why I was like, dude, I love this country. I love where I grew up and I want to pay back. Got it. It wasn't until I got into the Marine Corps that I realized, wow, I really enjoy this, you know, and being an infantry guy. And and then and going to Iraq for the invasion, I was a, a fire team leader back then. So I had three Marines that I was in charge of. But going into that invasion and for all of us to kind of, uh, well, pop our cherries, I guess, in combat was... Uh, a huge kind of com- like uh, rapport, rapport building or bond building experience for all of us because none of us had been to combat bef- before that. Um, and so this was something that we experienced together. And then I realized that, you know what, dude, like we trained for this really well. Like we're good at what we do. And now I know why like the Marine Corps infantry is such a fighting force. Cause like we, we have this down, like whether it was an ambush or whatever it was, like just the way we did things, really reflects on the training that we did back at Pendleton, mm-hmm. you know, leading up to that deployment. I mean, we were out there for like days and days doing reactive contact and ambushes and this and that, and like just wearing ourselves down to the bone because we knew we were about to go fight this enemy. And then the way it all came together in, in, in Iraq uh, just really motivated me to keep going. So before we get to the keep going part, because it's a big part of the story, just going back. So you joined in 2000 nothing's going on right. right if at that point you're already through all where are you when when 9-11 happens when 9-11 happened i was in the fleet i was already in the fleet at my unit for a few months we just got back from a run and everybody was like getting done showering and changing back into our uniforms when i saw my friends crowded around the tv i thought they were watching a movie uh when in fact obviously it wasn't right. a movie but right. yeah, I was already in the fleet, man. Like we were already done with boot camp and school of infantry and we'd already been in the fleet for like maybe four or five months together. Are you guys out through Okinawa yet and done all that stuff or whatever? Did you have to do that? Yeah, we yeah. did the, we did the Mew in Oki yeah. and hit all the ports. So you've kind of get done all that. So how long from the time you see your friends watching TV to, or everybody's watching TV to the time you're in Iraq? Um, I want to say it was a good year before we found out where we were going. Because, like, I knew that our command, like the 5th Marine Regiment, did not know if we're going to Afghanistan or if we're going to Iraq. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know. So we were training for both. Like, we may go to Afghanistan. We might. And so we just didn't know. So we were on standby for, like, a good year okay. before we actually found out. And then we did our pre-deployment uh, uh, builds. But 
for that good year, we just trained our asses off for both like an Afghanistan type environment where it was just like desert and longer, maybe longer engagements mm-hmm. and like, and then Iraq, like shorter engagements, a little more urban warfare type stuff. And so it was cool though, because we covered you all get of the it. mix. Yeah. Yeah. The- and, and the budget there was amazing because we were getting sent to places that I just, I didn't know that we could do. Like we were getting like sent where? to, we were getting sent to like, uh, shooting schools, we were getting sent to movie theaters or movie studios, production houses, like in San Diego, where they set up like an Iraqi village for us. Okay. With like RPGs on invisible wires, like IEDs, like they just set up everything, role players. And I was like, man, it's so cool that we get to do this. We're on a movie set, basically like just playing out this war scene. Well, how did that work <laughs> out though? Like, I mean, yeah. so the question is, is like, okay, so that was the movies. Yeah. Like, what was that like when you got over there? Did, I mean, you said you felt like you were very prepared, like you trained really well. But uh, I mean, can you compare and contrast that? Just like what well, you saw? Well, I think, that- I think the training is always going to be a little more extreme, a little more worst case scenario type-ish, you know, such okay. scenarios like, oh my God, we got five Marines down. What do we do? You know? Mm-hmm. And so... And I, and I appreciate that it has to be that hard because it's like, we may never have five Marines down on the ground injured at any point, but it's good to understand what needs to happen. What is the protocol there? Where, where's the security coming from? Where's the aid coming from? All that stuff, QRF. And so it was good for that. And those are the type of things that we needed that we couldn't just do for ourselves back at Pendleton. And so the leadership that we had at the time just scored away, guys. Like our, our company commander and battalion commander came, both came from recon. In fact, okay. our battalion commander came from force recon. So he was like, let's get after training. Right. And we were all like, yes, let's do it. So he's the one that was like, let's go here and, you know, to the production house. Cause it was a friend of his that did that for us. Let's go to this high speed shooting school that Marines don't usually go to, you know? And so we went to like driving schools and we went to all these little schools that was really cool to see for us to go before we go Iraq. So you go into Iraq for the for the invasion. Uh, how long are you there? Uh, we were there like a good nine months. So we got there like in February, staged in Kuwait, and then we waited for the word to push, and then we pushed into Iraq. Um, and then I think we had we left in I want to say October, November. I forget. I, I have to ask, like. <laughs> From the families, going back to the family perspective and the upbringing and now going back to the Middle East um, as a grown man, right? And trained, knowing what you're about to get into. Were you handling that different than anybody else, just kind of in your mind uh, about, you know, going, thinking about your family and where they'd come from and how hard they worked to get you sort of out of that area? Because we haven't even gone to Afghanistan yet. Yeah. But, but uh, how, did, how did that all play out in your head, man? Yeah, well, so I guess I should start with like when I was, when I finally out of college made my decision that I'm joining the military, a lot of my family were against it, obviously. And they gave me, they gave me, you know, stuff to think about, like, well, we just came from a war-torn country and now you're about to join the military. And my only defense was there's nothing happening right now. Mm. Like there's no war going on and it's a good time. And, and plus all the incentives, like if I go do a couple of years, you know, there's a lot of incentives I come out with as a veteran. You know, so I was trying to like explain to them, this could be very, very beneficial to me. Uh, but they just weren't having it. They just weren't having it. To them, it was like, you're joining the military, you're going to go fight somewhere. And, was, and then, you know, obviously they were right. They were right. Yep. But they just, nobody knew that. 
they just assumed. And so there's a lot of discouragement on their part. In fact, there's there's some like mind games that they play with me all the time. They would they would tell me that I'm not fast enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough. You know, <laughs> like harsh, I'm gonna man. I'm gonna get through like two two weeks of boot camp and then quit. You know, so they're just trying to do everything they could to talk me out of it. But I just I I use that as fuel. I just use it as fuel, man. Like, because yeah. it was to me, it was like, cool. You guys keep thinking that I'm gonna. I've already made my decision, but now I'm gonna use that to fuel me for the times where I do feel weak. You know, where I do maybe want to quit. I'll use that. Um, and I took that with me throughout my entire career. I always like pictured them telling me I couldn't do it. You know, whenever, whenever, even years later when I went to like SFAS and stuff. But yeah, it was that. It was a lot of them telling me. No, don't do it. No, it's dangerous. We just came from Afghanistan. And then I finally, like, despite not agreeing with one of them or not getting one of them to agree with me or see my side, I still you went, went. You went and did you it. Know? Yeah. And then I knew, like, they're just going to have to accept it. But when <laughs> when 9-11 happened, it was like, ah, here yeah, we go. I told you so. Yeah, yeah, now I have to explain this and defend myself all over again. It's a whole different deal, man. You know, and that's what it was. That's what it was. And obviously when we were deploying, I had to go through that again. It's like, now you're going somewhere, you know? Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask because it's, I mean, that's much different than, you know, somebody else who hadn't, whose family hadn't been through that. Uh, again, you go, so you go to, you go to Iraq. Um, we all know what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, but your experiences there, just on the ground, you said you went as a team leader um, and you, you recognized how well-trained you really were for the environment that you're walk, walking into as best as you could be, I'm sure. But the, how did that impact you leaving there and coming out of there? Where was your mindset going through that? Because when you had told me, like, I don't know, I really don't have a plan. I'm going in. Right. I, when I get out, maybe I'll go to grad school. I'll figure it out when we get there. Right. Like, where's your head during all that? Um, I think that within my first year of being in the Marine Corps, like in the fleet and seeing like what we're about and what we do, I decided, okay, you know what? I may stay here for a while. Okay. Like, this may be a career for me because I enjoy it. And I didn't really know, like, this was before, obviously, Iraq kicked off and everything. I just enjoyed being in the Marine Corps as an infantry guy, being in this unit, and then doing what we did every day. I just I just liked it. It was I wasn't in an office, you know, signing paperwork and having meetings and writing emails. I was doing something fun, and I enjoyed that. The Obviously, dealing with my family was one thing, but then once we, like, got into Iraq— there are some things that really mess with me. Like here I am a Muslim guy that's getting ready to fight other Muslims, you know, and in my, and, and in Islam, they say like, when you kill one person, you kill, it's like killing the entire humanity, right? Like you've killed. And same thing for when you save somebody. So here I am thinking, well, I never killed anybody before, but now the very first person I may have to kill is someone who's also a Muslim. And Yes, I grew up Muslim and I, and I believe in Islam, but I've, I was never like a practicing Muslim. Like I don't pray five times a day. I don't fast. I have fasted in the past. I don't know. I don't typically fast. Uh, I won't be taking a pilgrimage to Mecca anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Although I do want to go one day because I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. I won't be going anytime soon. So I'm not like a practicing Muslim, but I, I'd be lying if I said I don't believe in Islam or I don't respect my religion. Um, and so... But now going there and having to kill other dudes that were Muslims was like kind of troubling at first. I didn't know how to deal with that. Like I was like, am I going to be able to pull the trigger on this guy or like how's... And so I had to deal with that being there on the ground. Like every day I was just thinking about it like, okay. And then we get into our very first ambush. 
these dudes are like 300 meters away on a berm, like shooting AKs and RPGs at us. And we're returning fire. And I don't know if I'm hitting people or not. I just don't. Like I'm aiming down my sights, you know, and I'm aiming down my optic and I'm looking and I'm like, I don't, I'm, maybe I hit them, you know? And me, the whole time I'm like, ah, I don't know. I was like, did I just kill that guy? Did I miss? Like, I don't know. But then like what really kind of like got me past all that was just a very basic thought process of survival. You know, I was like, I don't have time to think about this. Like, I don't have time to stay here and debate with myself on who I'm killing or whatever, you know? And the way I looked at it was these guys, they're not insurgents, right? This was like the Republican Guard, Iraqi Republican Guard. These are all dudes who signed up to serve their military and protect their country. Same as you. Same as me, right? Except who's, the, who's really the bad guy here? Because we, we just invaded their country. not mm-hmm. the not, So like they could see us as bad guys, right? And um, so again, this whole spectrum of thought was just coming to me and going and coming and going. And at the end of the day, I was like, well, you know what? It really doesn't matter now. Because like, I don't have time to stay here and be like, oh, dude, you're Muslim, I'm Muslim. Let's not kill each other. You're here. You yeah. know, it's like, dude, we're here on the battlefield. I really don't have time to care about you or what you are. And so that was it. All I cared about at that point was the guys to my left and right and less getting safe through this and then maybe getting home at the end of this, right? And that's, that's really what it came down to. I know it's not like this whole philosophical, like, eureka moment, you know, where it's like, <laughs> you know, it just came down to survival, bro. That's it. I want, I want these guys to be fine. I want myself to be fine. Let's get through today. Let's get back home. And that's all it came down to. And then that was it for me. Like, I never had to give that another thought ever, regardless of where I went in the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it has to be any more philosophical than that. Man. Yeah, it I doesn't. Mean, that's it, a very natural human instinct. And yeah. uh, I mean, I have no idea how I would handle those situations. But at yeah. the same time, like having to go any deeper than what you just said, I think every every person listening to this could to relate to that. Like, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting, man, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it because we just didn't have a lot of yep. time to spend. I get it. But then the other part was, again, I just enjoyed what I did. Like I said, I was a fire team leader. So, you know, in the Marine, in the Marine Corps squad, you have three squads per platoon. Each squad has three fire teams, okay. three fire team leaders and a squad leader. And then you have your attachments, like your radio guy, maybe some mortars or, or snipers or whoever. Mm-hmm. But I was just one of the team leaders on that squad. And then that was for OIF-1. And then after OIF-1, I became a squad leader. I went to squad leaders course, infantry squad leaders course, which is the equivalent of ranger school, but not as prestigious as ranger school, obviously. Um, but went to that and then became a squad leader for the next trip, which was Fallujah, Operation mm. Phantom Fury. Mm. That one was gnarly. Yeah, right? that one was pretty gnarly. Okay. So, you're, the, there's, so there's multiple deployments. And then ultimately, there's a move from the Marine Corps into the Army. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? Yeah, so once I, once we were wrapping up um, Fallujah in 2004, that deployment really changed me. It really changed my outlook on the military. It changed, uh, it kind of changed my thought process as to like, what do I want to do next? Because I knew that I didn't want to just stay in the Marine Corps. And I was too senior to go try out for a recon or force. And MARSOC was just a rumor back then. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was just the beginning so stages. My only choices back then was to go be a recruiter, go be a drill, drill instructor, mm-hmm. maybe go teach at the School of Infantry, a B-billet, right? 
So I knew that I was going to spend the next three years doing a baby build and I was going to be miserable. And I was like, no, dude, I don't want to do Doesn't that. Doesn't sound like fun. Yeah. So leaving, leaving Felicia as a squad leader and going through that experience, I was like, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I just don't know where I'm going, but I'm going somewhere like special operations. Like obviously in the Marines, we look up to SEALs. We work with SEALs a lot. Like in Fallujah, we had a SEAL team with us. It was Chris Kyle's team actually was with us in Fallujah. And we had his team while he was out with the snipers doing his thing. Uh, so naturally a lot of Marines go into the Navy and try and go to BUDS and then become SEALs. But for me, I did a lot more research and I decided that, you know, maybe, maybe I want to try like army special operations. And before I even dug into that, I actually did the Blackwater thing first. Like you researched them? Mm-hmm. Okay. I actually applied to Blackwater. Okay. And after about a 30-day interview process with them, I got an offer letter to go to Iraq for uh, three months on, one month off for a year. Okay. So nine months on, three months off. A lot of money, a lot of money, almost 200K tax-free. And I was like, man, three months on, one month off, that's pretty good. Like, you know, I'm just an E-5 out of the Marine Corps, you know, infantry guy. That's good money. And it was tempting, really tempting. But I had to, I had to also look at like the support network that Blackwater had back mm-hmm. then. And it wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. Like when those guys ca- got into a tick, they were kind of on their they're own. They're out there. Unless yeah. there was some adjacent unit that would come, you know, QRF for them or whatever. But more than likely, they were on their own. Um, and so I decided, you know what? No, thanks. Uh, I was like, I'm going to take my chances, go to the army, try out for, you know, special forces. And, and then that's after talking to my wife at the time and talking to a bunch of other people and getting some feedback, you know, and I knew that if I was going to go do dangerous stuff, that at least it'd be nice to have some support, you know, if like the shit goes down. So I'm curious, I'm curious, <laughs> just like, let's go army, the army Navy thing here for a second. You just, or, uh, yeah. So army Navy thing. So you mm-hmm. want special forces, but. What was the difference between Army and Navy Special Forces that drove you to Army? Well, I think, I think like the Navy and Navy SEALs are so good at what they do, you know, when it comes to maritime operations, when it comes to the quick infill, exfill type stuff, when it comes to recon, you know, data, data gathering. I think they're good at that. Uh, and despite, you know, me busting their balls, because I have so many Navy SEAL friends, you know, mm-hmm. we always talk shit. Like, but despite some of the missions in the recent times that, you know, may say otherwise, Navy SEALs are top tier operators, man. Like they're good dudes. If there is if there is a way for us to separate us demographically, it'd be I would say that SEALs are typically a little bit younger than Green Berets. Okay. I would say maybe SEALs are in their younger 20s, mid-20s to like late 20s, whereas Green Berets, your average Green Beret is going to be late 20s to early 30s, you know, and then... Yeah, I've actually heard, I was talking with Shelton Stevens, who's the strength and conditioning coach out there at Bragnow, and works with a lot of those guys. I think the average Delta guy is like 32. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's getting younger. Yeah. That's probably where he was going. Because yeah. uh, when I got to a SF team, we had, besides me being the new guy, we had one other young new guy, and we had one 18 X-ray. Uh, when by the time I left the teams, we had six 18 X-ray, like half the team, right? Because right. were the, these young the maturity, dudes. yeah. Because it well, it's, it comes to retention. Yeah. Uh, Special Forces has a terrible, terrible uh, retention quality. Uh, they just they just try to retain guys too late, and by the time they try to retain guys to stay in, these guys understand their value out in the civilian world. Mm-hmm. They're like, why would I stay in and deal with this crap when I can go make six figures with a Fortune 500 company right. just because of the color of my beret? Right. 
And so, so yep. you know, and like the army can't offer you enough when it comes to that. So you lose a lot of the senior leadership and the guys, the teams get younger and younger. That's you have E7s taking teams, you know, when they barely have enough time in their own MOS. Uh, and that is a serious problem. So this is, you were examining this, you were seeing this. For, I wasn't this. examining that per se. That is something that kind of came with the territory once I came in and I understood the process in our, in our organization. But when I was trying to decide Navy SEALs or Green Berets, it was like, what, what all do Navy SEALs do? What all do Green Berets do? Where all do they operate? Where all do they operate? Mm-hmm. So I was trying to do like, what is the scope of work? You know, mm-hmm. what can they do? And when it comes to scope of operations and scope of work, Green Berets do far more than Navy SEALs. Uh, when it comes to counterterrorism, when it comes to foreign intelligence, when it comes to mm-hmm. um, uh, when it comes to FID, which is foreign internal defense, basically like training your host nation partner forces yep. and stuff like that, host yep. nation forces. So there's a lot of stuff that we do on the UW side that SEALs don't do. Can they do it? Yeah, I think they're capable of doing it. They're just they're just not set up to do that right now. It's like it's like Marsoc. Marsoc, when they first went to Afghanistan, had no idea what to do. Although their leadership was like, this is what you guys should be doing. It took them a long time to get their wheels spinning as to, okay, this is what Marsoc should be doing. They didn't know, like, are we kind of like doing the same thing as SEALs? Are we doing the same thing as Green Berets? I've heard this. I've had guests on the show that have talked through this. Yeah. Yeah. And so they took them a long time to find their place in Afghanistan in the special operations Mm -hmm. wheelhouse. But they did. Obviously, they did. And and they're kind of doing, they're doing fine. And obviously, things have ramped down, but there's other things that they're doing as well. And so it was, it was one of those things, but I chose Green Berets because of their scope of work, their rich history. Not that SEALs don't have a rich history, but the type of history I'm looking for is where Green Berets, you know, and uh, no regrets going that direction at all, man. You know, was it hard for you? Like, I mean, let's just say the process. Well, selection, selection is a process that can be very hard if you're, if you haven't come there mentally and physically prepared it will, it will kind of destroy you a little bit. Uh, but selection is 24 days of, of just physical activity. You start out with like 400 guys within the first 48 hours where they kind of shock and awe you with all this physical stuff. About half those guys will drop out. And once you VW, meaning voluntarily withdraw out of SFAS, you can never come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you have about 200 guys that are going, you know, through the next 22 days and they're slowly kind of trickling out. Uh, it's again, it's a lot of physical, a lot of physical activity, uh, a little bit of mental kind of some, some mental stress inoculation there, Mm -hmm. but most of it's physical and most of it's individual based. So you can't help each other until you get the team week. You know, there's a lot of land nav too. So if your land nav is poor, you're not going to find your points, but it's not, it's not like impossible. You just need to come there with an attitude, with a certain mindset. And I think what helped me the most was I talked to a green braid beforehand and he said, look, the best thing I can tell you is take it one event at a time. Don't even think about the next event. Don't think, don't think tomorrow. Don't think next week or 24 days out. Just think about this event. And he's like, take a comfortable pair of boots with you at night and make sure that you're not trying to break them in. And they're already broken in. But also at night when everyone else is going to bed, spend like five minutes and just massage your feet. And I was like, okay. And that's what I did. Like every night before bed, I'm just sitting there like massaging my feet, looking okay. for hot spots. If there was a blister, I would needle and thread it and leave the thread in there. I know for people you listening know. to this, I've listened to several of these, you know, the selection process stories yeah. for for that particular process. And 
that that wrecks people. You can be the fittest, smartest, sharpest yeah. dude in there, but if you can't take care of the little things like that, it could be the it could be the death of you. Yeah, so, you're right, man. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. It's like just massage your feet, have comfortable boots, and take it one day at a time. Three very that's, simple steps to process. Yeah, that's uh, all he gave me. Steps to that's to all do he gave. He, oh, and don't quit. He said, just yeah. don't quit. He's like, he's like, whenever you feel like quitting, man, he's like, you need to find something that'll help you. And I was like. I got that part down. Don't worry, bro. I got family back home. Yeah, I could think I'm not about, going back to that. Yeah, 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 I'm not quitting. But it was just little things like that. And you're right. I saw the biggest, like most jacked dudes just crumble, you know, because it was just up here. They quit up here. So naturally your body's going to follow. Like, so, but then I saw like small, young or not, not, I don't know if they're young or not, but I saw like these skinny dudes, you know, skinnier than me. And like I, wiry and I wasn't dudes, like, I wasn't like this back then. I was scrawny. But they're just like pushing through with all the heart, man, motivating me. I was like, dude, that kid inspires me. Like, I'm going to keep going, you know, and stuff like that. So, so yeah, a selection is not about how big you are, how jacked you are, how fast you are. It's really about what can you, how much can you put up with and, and how much can you internalize that versus externalize it to everybody else? Mm-hmm. Really? I, I mean, I've heard similar, similar stories before, but, uh, it always comes down to the simple stuff, right? And it, so at the end of the day, you get through this, right? And then now there's a whole other journey, right? Mm-hmm. I, for people that don't understand, you sort of alluded to like the scope of work differences between maybe what Navy does and the, and the Army does in this in this sense. But, you know, I, when you talk about that, I think I think when I talk to people like, with my limited knowledge yeah. that Green Berets are very misunderstood, in terms of what they're doing when they go into places yeah. uh, like Afghanistan yeah. or, or Iraq. Can you just talk about like what, what it looked like for you? I mean, it's had to been very different than when you were uh, in the infantry and in, in the Marine Corps, but what, what were the things that you were doing? What did the daily look like for you when you went to, when you got deployed? Um, so like an SF team is just think of special forces as very big boy, excuse me, big boy rules. SF, SF team is, uh, it's it's not it's not like you will uniform you will wear your uniform every day and you'll have a clean shaven haircut and clean shave and all that and like it's not like that it's not like the Marine Corps Marine Corps like was like you will show up every Monday morning with a with a fresh haircut high and tight or medium reg or whatever clean shave and your uniform is gonna be spotless like your rolls on your sleeves are gonna be you know pristine boots shined it wasn't like that. However, that is the mentality that I grew up with. So I naturally went into the army that way. Yeah. I was very like disciplined. I took pride in my uniform, even prior to selection when I just showed up to this, you know, regular unit. When I got to SF, it was completely opposite. It was like dudes were in just PTs all day, like, you know, five o'clock shadows, like no haircut for like weeks, you know. And I got a taste of that when I was in the Q course at Brad because I saw the instructors. I saw their hair. I saw the way they dressed. Boots weren't bloused, you know, especially if we were on the range or something. And I was like, man, I was like, is this what SF is like? Just like super chill, like hands in our pockets, you know, just. And then I got to the unit and I got to the fifth group and I was like, yep, that's exactly what it's like, you know, because it's like, why fight battles? when we have like wars to fight, you know, it's like the leadership is not going to come down on their guys for not shaving 
or, or not getting a haircut or not blousing their boots because there are bigger things going on. We don't have time. At this point, like, is this really yeah, what we're going to be talking about exactly. today? Exactly. Yeah. We just don't have time for conventional problems at the special operations level, you know? Okay. So let's, let's let the guys do them, let their morale be high. If they want to be in PTs all day, unless there's like a ceremony or something we have to be, you know, that we have to, you know, clean up for, let the guys do what they want. Let's do the work that we came here to do, whether it's cleaning weapons or inventory or, you know, packing stuff up for a trip overseas. Let's just get the work done and go home and enjoy time with our family. And that's it. Um, so with that mentality was cool, big boy rules. Don't get in trouble. You have all this space and freedom and flexibility to do whatever you want. Just don't step on your dick. Don't, don't fuck it up. Just don't I fuck just, it that, up. That can be a little harder for some than it is for others. <laughs> well, so it's a double-edged sword, right? Because now you give these guys, let's just say these guys came out of the Q course and they're new guys. And it's like, hey, congratulations. You're a Green Beret now. You're on this team. Big boy rules. To them, that's like, oh my God, I'm about to lose my mind. <laughs> because for the last two years, I've been busting my butt, you know, staying clean and this right. and that. And now I'm at I'm in my unit and I just have, I can do whatever All I want. All the freedoms, yeah. And so a lot of the younger guys get in trouble with alcohol, driving and drinking. They'll go to a place and get to a fight, you know, because again, they have this, they're not, they're not thinking like Green Berets. They're thinking like young soldiers that have freedom for the first time. They have liberty for the first time in a while. But, uh, you know, they say that as hard as SFAS and the Q course is, the real test of being a Green Braid doesn't start until you show up to your team. Because now you have 11 other guys that you need to prove that you belong here and that you will, you will get up to par training-wise so that one day you could have their back, you know, and they don't have to worry about you as a liability, but they see you as an asset. That's hard. That's hard to now show 11 other dudes who've been on the team together for a while that you showing up as a new guy, you're worthy of being there. You know, and you got to prove that every day. And yes, they're going to treat you like a new guy for a while. Um, I got the new guy treatment. doesn't matter where I came from. I was just going to ask you. doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Like you get the new guy treatment and you deal with it. And then eventually you get accepted and then you find your little niche in the team, you know, but that's the hardest part. Do you ever step on your dick with those guys? hundred percent. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Well, give me, give me an example of a time that really, uh, really pissed them off. Well, I think the very first mistake I made was I didn't show up with enough beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in my book, that's a problem, too, if you come over to my house. But, yeah, because, you know, they say they don't. But here's the problem is they don't say how much beer. Yeah, you I got you. It's with. never going to be good enough. Right? They say, yeah. So I showed up with two 18 packs. All right. Just like I think it was, I forget, it was like Bush or something like that. And there's like, whatever you do, do not show up empty handed. And I was like, cool. Well, you know, I, this is what I can carry. <laughs> yeah, this is what I can carry. I could have carried more, obviously. But I show up with two 18 packs and they just look at me like. That's go, it? go back to the store. <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, like get out of here. And I was like, oh fuck, I fucked up already. Like oh, day one. Man. No, but that's you know that's all that's all kind of playing and stuff. Gotcha. But I have definitely as a junior Bravo made some mistakes with weapons. You know, where is this weapon? Where is this optic? Uh, how come the the inventory doesn't match what we have on hand? Little problems like that. Those, but those are problems that every MLS goes through. Like your eighteen Charlies, who's in charge of inventory for everything, have it way worse than just the Bravos for the weapons or the Echoes for their comms gear. You know, uh, and uh, so you make mistakes like that. But I've definitely stepped on my dick once or twice in schools. Mm. Uh, I went to a school, and there were certain things that I didn't take serious enough, and I didn't make the deadline, and damn near got booted. You know. Um, but also, I've stepped on my dick financially, too, dude. Like, I have no problem admitting that that when you get to an SF team, you get a government credit card, and you they want you to obviously be 
responsible yeah, with that card. responsible is important. Yeah, because yeah. especially because you need that for schools. That's how you pay for rentals and your hotels and you pay for your everything else. If you overuse that or if you don't account for it, obviously there's going to be questions like where this money gets spent on. I was at a school in, in, in Seattle where I kind of did that. I mismanaged the funds a little bit. I wasn't like, I wasn't like at the strip club or anything, but it was like, I should have got a cheaper rental car. Yeah, or, gotcha. You know what I mean? Like yeah, something like shit that. Adds up, yeah. Yeah. Cause then now I'm getting like, then it goes back to the team and now my team's starting and everyone's like, Hey, uh, you know, you spent this much money, like, but everybody else spent this much money. Yeah. Yeah. So right. I was like, Oh, okay. All right. Like we're never going to make that mistake again. Gotcha. So it's little things like that. But as far as like in a serious manner where people's lives are on the line, thank God, like I can always say no. <laughs> so this is interesting. So that's interesting <laughs> that you pull those things up. Like these are just <laughs> yeah. like growing pains, right? It's, it's, just, just, yeah. it's like, you're, it's boring. It you're, really is you're starting boring, like yeah. almost like in a teenager again, you know, like you're walking in as a, Cause you have just so much freedom. There's so you, much out there. Yeah. They're just like, welcome to the SF world. Yeah. You know, it's like, what guns, do you want like <laughs> well like, yeah you're the bravo guy right so yeah. what people, explain what that is because people people not might not understand what that is so the 18 bravo on a team is a weapons sergeant and uh you have an 18 charlie who's demolitions and engineering you have 18 delta who's who's med uh medical i mean you're pretty much talking about a guy that can do like field surgery mm-hmm. if he needed to so very qualified people 18 fox is intel assistant operations uh who i'm missing 18 alpha you or see, 18 Echo. Echo's the calm guys. Yeah. Calm guys. Anything comms, radio, satellite, anything like that. So as a Bravo, I'm in charge of weapons, but I also have a lot of proficiency in weapons, not just American, but foreign weapons. I can break them down. You get to down. play with all the things. Yeah. Yeah. You break them down, put them together, you troubleshoot them. I mean, this is all you're doing for months and months yeah. is breaking down weapons. You know, Glocks, from Glocks to M4s to M16s to Fin, like Fowls to AKs, RPKs. You name it. But then you're also messing with mortars too. So you get to do some mortar work. You do some call for fire and stuff like that. And so when you get to a team as an 18 Bravo, obviously you're in charge of all the weapons and stuff, but you're also in charge of some training. Like you put in the range packets, you put in the ammo requests. Um, Sometimes you put in the purchase, you know, you put in the purchase requests for whatever else you want. Like if you want some new EOTechs or whatever, something you can't get through the military side, you can try to purchase. Uh, but then on the operations side, Bravos are usually like your kind of like your pathfinders. Like they will plan routes to and from the, okay. the objective, the the waypoints and stuff like that. Sometimes they'll also kind of take the lead on actions on objective. Like when we get to this compound, what are we doing? Although on an SF team, we have MDMP, meaning that the 12 guys will split up into little four-man teams. Yep. And they will plan everything from leaving the wire to getting back into the wire or getting home. They'll plan everything. They pitch it to the officer and then the officer kind of cherry picks what he wants. And like the 18 Bravo could be the tactician on the team. He could be the senior guy on the team. That's like, this is what we should be doing. But that also is based on his experience and some of his schooling Obviously, sure. some combat operations. Sure, and who else too. might be on the team that might yeah. have more or less, yeah. That's how it should be. That's just not necessarily how it is all the time. The, the, tact, the tactician could be any guy, you know. Um, but that's how it is. But what makes Green Berets amazing is our ability to be able to call ourselves a jack-of-all-trades. So there's not one thing that we're experts at. Like, you know, but there's so many things that we stay proficient at. This is, this is one of the, this, going back to the scope of work for... You know, Army versus Navy. This is yeah. one of, the, I think, those standout things. Again, not to take anything away. Well, it's just it's one just, of the things I understand. Yeah, and I was never a Navy SEAL, so I can't truly speak, right? I, I clearly have no experience with either of this, yeah. so yeah. But I know that they do a lot of the same training we do. Sure. 
they just don't do a lot of the same uh, mission sets that we do. So their training is a little more tailored towards what they already do versus like uh, on an on a on the in the SF world, every team has a missile mission essential task list, meaning that you might be on a mountain team. I might be on a halo team, you know? So you are doing everything mountains, climbing, repelling, horses, no horses, pack mules. You're living in the mountains. You're fighting in the mountains. You know how to do that very well. I may be on a halo team where I am now, you know, jumping out of airplanes from 50,000 feet or I'm doing like hay hoes or I'm doing high openings and I'm doing infiltrations, you know, behind enemy enemy lines and and stuff like that. And then obviously a little of the just regular infantry, infantry type skill sets play into that, how to fight and this and that. But every ODA has their specialty. You have a dive team, mm-hmm. you know, the dive, the SF ODA dive team is pretty much the same as a SEAL team when it comes to maritime operations and capabilities but they have other things they have to worry about too, like ground infill or fighting on the ground or, you know, uh, rally points or, or whatever it is, you know, that you want to throw in there for combat operations. Um, and that's it. And so whatever your team that you're on, you could be on a DA team, you could be on a direct action team. So that means a lot of CQB, a lot of shooting, you know? So that, depending on what team you're on, drives the kind of training that you're gotcha. doing. It, tra- it, tra- it, it drives the buildup, but it also kind of drives some of the physical physical fitness aspect of it too. Of sure. It. I mean, specific adaptations yeah. to whatever it is you need to do. You know, the, the guys on the scuba team are always in the water. It makes you sense. Know? Mountain guys, a lot of lower body type stuff, a lot of endurance type stuff, you know? Right. So it's just a lot of that. And that's why, and because you don't stay on the whole, on one team the entire time, you know, in your 16, in my case, in my 16 years, I got to go from team to team mm-hmm. and I got to experience a little bit of everything. So I was like, dude, I know a little bit a lo- a about lot of, a lot of stuff a lot of things, yeah. and not a lot about, you know. And so, but but that's something that n- no other special operations unit really does. SEALs don't do that. PJs don't do that. Yeah, MARSOC, MARSOC doesn't do that. Although MARSOC is trying to. Um but they don't do that. And so, again, that kind of goes back to why I chose Green why you Berets. Chose it, yeah. But why I think Green Berets are a little more special than everybody else. Well, you, you should, um, as you should. I mean, I mean, there's... No, but that's should. not to say any... That's not, I'm not discounting anybody else. I, I don't, I'm not getting it. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not getting that from you at all. I man. do that enough on my own time. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be people listening to this that wear different color berets. Where they're going to be like, this guy, you know, whatever. That's just going to happen naturally. Yeah. Like you said, you have Navy, Navy SEAL buddies you talk shit yeah, with all I'm the time. I'm just explaining why I chose Green Berets over everybody else because that's what I, I was looking for scope of work. That's what I was getting where can I be the busiest and where can I be the most capable? Yeah. And for me, that was special. Uh, yeah, I get it. I think you did a really good job of, of, of explaining that man with, and, and doing it well and uh, doing it bureaucratically. Yeah. It was, it's well done. <laughs> but also I knew that from the army side, the other doors would open too, though, you know, and I was hoping that because I was Afghan, because I was Muslim, that I could maybe open some doors for myself on the army side versus the <laughs> Navy, which is a little more restricted when it comes to, Okay, so that's a big question. So that's the next thing. So let's go back to language. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and did I mean? Do you speak Farsi? Do you speak Arabic? I do. Yeah? yeah. Okay. So Afghan Dari actually is that what that's what it is? Okay. Yeah, you have Afghan Dari, which is what Afghans speak, and then you have Persian Farsi, which is right. what Iranians speak. Right. They're both very Similar. compatible. Okay, I can understand Persians, and Persians can understand me, and. There's a lot of French influence in the Persian Farsi. Yep. Afghan Dari is just, we just took a little bit from everybody. But Afghan Dari's origination was a business language for back in the day when Afghanistan was still like the Silk Road and the yep. big trade center, international trade center. 
Daria was kind of created as the business language. But you still have all the tribes that are going on and they're kind of all doing their own, their yeah. own things and a little so bit. That was like the international business language that everyone spoke, you know, so we don't have to understand this person's language and that person's language. But then like Afghanistan's actual language is Pashto. That's the original language okay. of Afghanistan is Pashto. Pashto is very hard to understand. Uh, it's nine day difference from Dari. Really? Um, there is some, obviously some vocabulary that are the same, okay. but conjugation and just stru- like sentence structuring, it's all very different from Dari. Um, so, so you have a little bit of a leg up, obviously on, on the team with, from that, that perspective, you know, when you talk about, we'll talk about something else here in a second in terms of movies and things like that yeah. and interpreters or whatever, but as a as a guy on the team, does that mean that you don't have to have maybe an interpreter on your team if you're out like in places like like Afghanistan? Worst case scenario, it does mean that, but more than likely on the SF team, we have two to three to four translators. That many, yeah, that many. Uh, just because we don't always go out as a team, you know, we we sometimes do split team ops and stuff oh, that like sense. that. Yeah, but so. like, even if I was, even if I just spoke Dari fluently, which I don't, I speak it very well. I can communicate with people very well. I just don't, I, I can't say that I speak it fluently. But even if I did, a lot of the places in Afghanistan where we operate are not Dari-speaking people because a lot of the Dari-speaking people are to the north. And so where we were operating was a lot like Taliban havens, a lot of, you know, and so a lot of Pashto-speaking people. Interesting. And so we needed those translators to like translate and be like, okay, you know, tell me what he said in Pashto and then so I can understand. And then I would speak Dari back to him just to build rapport. And I would like look at the village elder and I was speaking and he's like, holy shit, you know, Dari. So that's an interesting next, <laughs> next question. I mean, yeah. was there ever a time where there was a moment like that where they recognize like you're from Afghanistan and you're wearing, you know, you're the, wearing the military uniform of a, and the flag from the United States of America. Yeah. Was there ever a moment? Was there ever like a weird moment, like an awesome moment, there's, like a really dangerous moment? There's plenty of those moments. Uh, usually the safety or the security protocol was really don't say yeah, anything. Right, don't right. say anything for the first 30 days. Uh, like, let me listen to their conversations. Let me eavesdrop a little bit and see what they're talking about, especially like the A&A guys and some of the AMP guys, the police, you know. Let me let me vet these guys for a good 30 days and listen in on them before I tell them that I'm Afghan. Because I knew that once I told them I was Afghan, their jaws would drop, hit the ground, but then a million questions would come, yep. right? Well, tell me what it's like being Afghan in America. Like, all those questions would come, but also then it's like, okay, do they still see me as the same person or do they now see me as a traitor or do they see me as a, as a ally that now can bridge the gap between the ANA and you know, the ODA, Mm -hmm. like, can I be the bridge? And a lot of times that's what it was. I was like the rapport builder between our units. They would, they would just work harder. They would just show a little more respect. They'd be on time a little bit more. And then, but also on the downside, anytime they needed something, they would come to me. <laughs> and I was like, bro, guy. don't come to me. I'm the weapons guy. Go to the Charlie, like yeah. go to, go to Aaron, you know, like yeah. whatever you need batteries and stuff. <laughs> but they always come to me because again, it was rapport building and they knew that I was the Afghan. So naturally they would just come to me, but it was good because at the end of the day, it just meant they worked harder for us. You know, uh, there wasn't really a moment where I was like, felt threatened um, by the guys that we were working with after I told them I was Afghan. Mm. In fact, if I'd have to say anything, some of the Middle Eastern units that we would take to Afghanistan with us, like every once in a while, we take Jorsov, Jordanian Special mm-hmm. Forces, or we take UAE Special Forces with us. And it was more so some of the, some of the looks I would get from them, because I wouldn't tell them either. 
But then they would show up and eventually I would be like, yeah, I'm Afghan and I'm Muslim because these guys are all Muslim. And now we're living in this base together. And they would look at me differently a little bit sometimes. Was that because you weren't as or practicing uh, the religion the same as they were? It was definitely that. That is that. It was definitely. I think that was probably the driving one was like they would invite me to. They're like, hey, come pray with us. And I'm like, all right. And then I think I did that like once or twice. Yeah. You know, we're not the same. And then everything, yeah. yeah, gotcha. It was, and, and like, you know, from their perspective, I could have looked at it like, well, if I go pray with these guys, then maybe it's just more rapport building. You know, maybe they'll be like, you know, it was just make things better for us. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, man, I, I decided that I'm not going to like change who I am for these guys. They need to see me who, for who I am and appreciate me for who I am. I can respect that. Yeah. yeah it's also, well, what do I have time for? Yeah, you know, and yeah. Where, where am I putting my time and my energy? Interesting, uh, interesting perspective. I've never had a green beret on the show, so this <laughs> is like this. You're, you're, this is educational, but it's also yeah. very interesting given the the circumstance. Yeah, uh, that particular circumstance that you're in and where you came from again, which I really wanted to uncover. There's another interesting thing that happens here for you. So you go through your your career. You said you spent 16 years, 16 years in special operations. Yeah, yeah, and four years in the Marine Corps before five, that. Five years, five in the Marine Corps. years. So. Yeah. A full, full What's the transition out of all of this look like for you? Because I can, I know that can be a very difficult time for people, but you seem like you're very calculated. Mm. You've thought, you've thought through a lot of things. Obviously, things come along the way. Yeah. But what was what what transition look like? Transition was honestly very easy for me. Uh, once I decided what I wanted to do, it was just a matter of letting the command know because I was on my ETS anyway. My ETS was coming up. They're trying to entice me to reenlist. They're like, hey give us another four years. We'll give you this much money. We'll give you two schools of your choice. And then you tell us where you want to go. And I was like, actually, that's that a, sounds pretty, like a pretty that's fucking a good solid deal. deal. Yeah. yeah. That's a solid deal. Like they were going to give me like 50 grand and, uh, and then give me two schools of my choice. And, and I get to choose where I want to go for my B billet. Like that was pretty solid. And it, most guys would have said yes to that. However, by then I had already made my mind up. I was like, nope, I'm going to go try out to be special forces. Like if I don't make it, then maybe I come back or I do some time in a conventional army unit in the, you know, in the army or I come back, but I have to try. So for me, it was like, I'm leaving. Thank you. Thank you for everything, but I'm leaving. And so it was a very honorable kind of exit where I got my honorable discharge, but I got, I got to shake the hands of a lot of people and say, thank you. And it's my time to go. And then, uh, into the army recruiter's office, told him I want to go to SFAS. And, and he was trying to get me to become an x-ray. He was like, why don't you take the x-ray way into the army, which is the 18 x-ray is basically having a special forces contract off the street. Meaning that all that really means is that you will go to, you'll go to basic. And as soon as you're done with basic, you'll go to jump school and you'll go to, you'll go to like a pre SFAS. Basically they're going to, they're going to like fast track you. Right. Whereas if you came in like 11 Bravo, then you'd have to like go see a recruiter okay. and then you have to like go through the whole act, thing. all these extra steps. Mm-hmm. Plus 18 x-rays were getting good bonuses back then. Yeah, I back- think they were getting like 50, 60 grand, you know? And, uh, so it was enticing. I was like, man, there's another way I can make a cool 60 grand and still do the same thing. But then the senior recruiter at the office was like, don't go the 18 x-ray route. Cause 18 x-rays are getting shat on. Like they're just, they're not getting looked at the same as prior listed guys. So he talked me out of the 18 X-ray way, and I went in 03 or 11 Bravo. And then I went and saw the recruiter at Fort Stewart, where I was in Hinesville, Georgia. That's where they assigned me. First day there, didn't even check into my unit. I went straight to the SF recruiter's office. I was like, hey, bro, I want to sign up to go to selection. He was like, cool, sign here. <laughs> and then I took that piece of paper to my unit 
<laughs> showed up to the showed up to the army unit with that piece of paper in hand. And and like before I said before I gave that to the first sergeant, the first sergeant was like happy to see me. He's like, Hey Sergeant Malay, like nice to meet you. You know, glad you're here. We need more NCOs like you guys with combat experience because we're getting ready to go to Iraq soon. And I was like, Hey, that's great, first sergeant, but I'm not here to deploy with you guys. <laughs> I'm here to get your signature on this. Like he didn't I didn't show him this piece of paper yet. He's just like, What? Like that makes no sense. You, you came here. Right. And we're getting ready to deploy. You're telling me you're not deploying with us. And I was like, here you go. And he hated me from that oh, moment yeah, on. It's like, I'm sure. Because yeah. the selection, your, SF, your SFAS orders supersede even combat orders. So like they couldn't, although that first one was trying to lock me into that combat deployment, my SFAS orders superseded that. So I was like, deuces, you know, but he hated me, man. He would always put me like on CQ, which is like watch. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I have like fire watch every other this, night. I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to piss that guy he off. He hated me. But then he was also a dirtbag, man. He wrote himself up for a purple heart when they deployed on that. The, oh, the, that I write the, so he was just one of those guys, man. Yeah. He was the same guy that was like, you won't make it past election. Like, Marines can't do army sit-ups and this and that. I'm like, okay, cool. First sergeant, thanks. <laughs> but then I was like, now I, I have to make it because I can't come back and face this guy. Right, right. You know? This goes back to how you got into the first place. Like, Dude, you can't go home to I this. I can't go back. Like, not going yeah, backwards. I can't go home to this guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Manny, I mean, you have a it's long career. I mean, that's, that's a long time to be in uh, and do anything. I mean, it's a good better part of your life at that point right yeah. in terms of you got through college and then the second half of your your life now and then so this comes to an end and you come out the other side uh did you know were you clear on what you wanted to do and and what you're doing now and how you're doing it or did it just kind of happen for you talk about that it didn't end the way i wanted to end um i prematurely left the special forces group i prematurely left my active duty time uh, at, I was at 18 years. I left active duty at 18 years. So there's only two years left mm-hmm. in the... And people were like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? And what a lot of people don't know is that my marriage was falling apart at the end of that. This is a common tale. My marriage was like all shambles, man. It was like, I did not know how to pick up all the pieces. That's how broken it was. Mm-hmm. Um... It came to a place where she ended up leaving. She took the kids and went back to Nebraska. That's where we met. And when she left, that was like, what I was like, I just had, all I had time was just to self-reflect. Like, what am I doing? You know, like here I am. I got two years that I can stay in, you know, and and retire. Or I can try to leave and fix my marriage. Because like, (laughs) I I can't do both, Mm. you know. Um, So I decided ultimately to get out. I decided to leave active duty and try to fix my marriage. And I spent the next three years trying to do that. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Uh, but when I look back at it, I think I still think I made the right decision mm-hmm. because where, cause what that set up was a journey for her and I to get to a good place where we are now is a very good place, very good dynamic where we support each other. We care about each other and we're happy, you know, but I don't know if it would have turned out that way had I stayed in another two years. And so to me, I never joined the military because of money. And so for me, it was like, well, dude, if you don't don't do these two years, you're going to miss out on retirement and this and that. I'm like, bro, money doesn't mean anything to me if I can't be happy at the end of the day. And like the only thing that made me happy at the end of the day was being married and having my kids because I had my four young kids back then. And so that's why I got out. But then I decided I'm going to try to 
go into the National Guard site to keep one foot in the door because if I ever wanted to come back active duty from National Guard, that was very easy. Mm-hmm. So that's what I decided to do. I went to 19th Group and I was like, hey, this is who I am. You guys need me. And they're like, yeah, dude, are you kidding me? We'll take you. Right. Sign here. Yeah. And um, and even before I left 5th Group, they were trying to promote me, give me a team. And I I would have said yes, if obviously, if I had stayed in, right. I would have said yes. But because I went to the National Guard side, and they 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 gave me the same offer right off the bat. They're like, dude, you're a senior, like senior enlisted guy with all this time active duty. Take a team and like be a mentor for these guys. And I was like, I would love to, but by now I have too many things going on. You know, I had already started two alpha training group. Okay. And I was already kind of teaching and everything here and there on some weekends. So by the time I got to 19th group, I did have a little too much going on. And I said no. And I've said no like four times now to that promotion because I'm still with 19th group. But I decided that I could still put, I could still achieve retirement through the National Guard side, but I could still have one foot in the door because I just wasn't happy the way I left. You sure, know? sure. In fact, if I was, if I had the choice, I'd be a fifth group still, man. You know, I'd be like a 25 year guy right now. Um, but it is what it is, man. And, and when I found, before I left fifth group, uh, I had a plan, like you said, calculated. You know, same thing when I left the Marine Corps. I had to know where I was doing and how I was going to get there. Same thing. So I started to have a training group. I started teaching all over the country. And I started thinking about some other business opportunities and this and that. And I had, I made sure that by the time I left fifth group, I had a solid plan of how to get there. Uh, and that was, what, five, six years ago? You know? It's not that long ago. No, not that yeah. long ago. But now, but now I do stuff with 19th Group. 19th Group has been solid to me, man. Like they have not ever given me any shit for my lack of of participation. Got you. you with, with the background that you have, and because they they, they I, I told them I was like, guys, I will come to you. You can utilize me however you want, but don't make me deploy, and don't make me go to schools. Because like deployments, I'm good on schools. I'm schooled out. Like let me just help out. I came from Cephalic. Let me put on these flat range training concepts for you from from the schoolhouse. Let me yeah. put in let me put in some CQB concepts for you, and let's train. You know, and and that's how it was, and they understood that, and they supported that, and that's kind of how they've been using me ever since I got there. Um, Seems like a all, solid deal. Yeah, and then when the whole COVID thing happened, dude, like they had my back the entire time. Like they weren't the unit wasn't the ones that were trying to kick me out. Obviously, that came from higher with regard to the vaccine. They were the ones that went to bat for me because I just kept saying no. And they were like, please take a religious exemption. Please take a medical exemption. And I was like, nope, nope. I'm neither one of those exemptions. I'm just saying no to the vaccine. So now you guys decide what you want to do with me. And for the longest time, they were like, well, we have to kick you out. And again, not coming from the unit because it's not their choice from higher. We have to kick you out. I'm like, cool, kick me out. I'm not taking the shot. So I just rode that. I rode that all the way to the end. And then what happened was there was a change of command at 19th group. And the 19th group was commander was like, no, we're not doing this to guys anymore. And so through that, just, just waiting it out it and, and, out and not complying, it somehow worked out where they're like, hey, you're good now. Like no one's getting kicked out. I think a lot of people are finding that out in different aspects of life too. Well, I feel bad jobs. for the guys that got kicked out, you know, and now they can't even come back in. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's ridiculous so, at, yeah. at every level, but, uh, especially yeah. on the active duty side, man, a lot of active duty, green berets, Navy SEALs, special operations guys got kicked out. Yeah. I was just having you know? a conversation with, uh, with, I don't know, maybe you know this Sorry, guy. Can I grab this? Yeah. Yeah, man. That's sure. Yeah. Uh, Ed Noland, uh, was with 75th Ranger Regiment for 20 years, something like that. 25 years. I think yeah. he was in a long time, but 
we were just talking about that and how that's impacted today's military on top of a lot of other things, not having a conflict, current politics, finance, what's going on other places in the world or whatever. But that, in terms of eliminating a huge population of people that had experience uh, that were or were on the verge of kind of moving to the next level, you've just wiped out an entire generation yeah. almost of, of leadership, of knowledge, wisdom, yeah. uh, and trust. You know, people that, that trusted and had joined the military for very, very, spe- you know, the service for very, very specific things and then felt betrayed, you know, at the end. That's that's not a good thing, man. It's not yeah, a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, the whole not having a theater of operations right now to to fight in or deploy to is huge. It's huge for the special operations side of things. Mm-hmm. The conventional army. They'll do well, their thing. They'll do their thing. You know, it's all mainly garrison mindset anyway. But for special operations, who's always combat mindset. And the future of combat and training and all that. It's like, what do these guys do? Mm. And I've heard from a lot of my friends in in the groups that they're losing guys young now. Mm-hmm. They're losing young guys. Guys that have been in group for two, three years are like, dude, we're not doing anything. Like, cool, we get to go to Israel. We get to go to Jordan. We get to go to South America or whatever the AO is, right? We get to go on these cool trips and we do some cool training, but we're not deploying. We're not fighting. It's going to have to take a very special... Um, it's going, to have to, it's going to have to take a few special individuals to be put on some kind of task force or tasking where you're actually going somewhere and fighting even now. Mm-hmm. But for that to happen, there's very few of those individuals yep. because of the schools and because of their qualifications. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the guys are just sitting around. It's like train, 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 but we're not fighting. So a lot of them get a couple, most of them get some years under their belt and they go off and get better jobs on the, on the civilian side. Yep. So it's really hurting us, you know. Uh, this not having a war to fight is really hurting special operations. Yeah, at so. a time where it seems like we should be making sure we're doing everything we can to make sure that shit is as tight as it can be. Because with, with I feel the, like it's around the corner. With yeah. the surrounding world conflict, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, we're gonna learn some hard lessons yeah. here, one way or another. That and is they're for not. Sure. And I would. And and like you know, special operations as a whole is definitely always been ready for war. Sure. Right. The training side, we have a lockdown. Like training's good, man. Some of the best training. But it's the itch. The mindset side. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. that, like, we need that release. You got to, like, guys have to go somewhere and deploy it. I, I mean, I think that that comes from, that, that's that's deep down, and it's, yeah. it's rooted deep in the DNA and in the soul, right? People need to be tested. And well, even during during the, the, the prime days of Afghanistan and Iraq, there were certain guys that were like, man, like, why aren't we fighting? Like, why aren't we going places to fight? Like, we're going to Iraq and Afghanistan, but we're doing a lot more HA-type stuff, like humanitarian aid. You know, and if we get into a fight or get into a tick, then cool, like lucky us. But we're not like, even at the prime days of Afghanistan and Iraq, teams weren't just constantly target packet building or building target packets on dudes. Like it just wasn't happening because even back then, the government of Iraq and the government of Afghanistan were starting to like tighten their stranglehold on U.S. operations, you know. Karzai came up with his rules, like his Karzai's 13. Mm-hmm. You could like that tied our hands for so many things, you know, same thing was happening in Iraq. Um, so a lot, even back then, a lot of guys were like, dude, like we're here in a combat theater and we can't get into fights because our hands are tied. Like even back then guys were getting out frustrated again, a lot of senior leadership retention was shit, you know, and it's like, why, why am I sticking around? Yeah, it's a tough place. Waiting to blow, just waiting to get blown up. You it's know? a tough place to be, especially after like 20 years of learning, right? And then have it basically be eroded right. so quickly 
it's a little scary to be thinking about it. I think as a as a citizen, you know, the country who needs and wants motivated, skilled, skilled, motivated, <laughs> qualified, you know, individuals out there ready to go at any moment's notice and not being frustrated by what they can't do, but being empowered to do what they can do for the right reasons, of course, yeah. within the the limits and structure, the left to right, if you will, of what is supposed to be happening. But uh, it's a little, it's a little challenging. Yeah, we get treated. It depends, like where you're, where you're going, because like a team of Green Berets can get a like a hall pass just to do anything they want in country. If it's not a combat theater, we fall under State Department. State Department can say, you guys have all the freedom in the world, depending on the AO and the threat environment and all that. Or you could go to a place where it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's not a combat theater, but it's your, your kind of supervised or owned by state department. And they say, you guys can't do anything. You can't even carry a Glock on your sides. Wow. You cannot go out beyond these points and you cannot go out outside of these times and you will have some kind of PSD with you. And that might be some host nation like, you know, three, four, I don't know, uh, Lebanese guys with guns just walking around with you. It's like, dude, that is not, that's not okay. Yeah. That's not okay. Yeah. Um, and so, but that's also the same in country in country. Like they could just undo the leash and say, go get them. Right. And it's like, cool. We're building target packets. We're going to go hit compounds. We're like dropping bombs on dudes or they can completely restrict us where we couldn't even leave the wire. That's so, a, so there's so much red tape, dude, that it's like, you could have a really good SF career or you could have a really bad one yeah. depending on where you fell into that spectrum and where your AO is. Yeah. yeah. I think that's important for people to understand. It's yeah. not all, it's not all the same everywhere. It's going to yeah. be very, very different. Even guys within the teams talk about like, just because you were one of these guys doesn't mean you're the same as this guy over here in terms of experience. And exactly. A lot of the same training, but the the actual stuff that you did could have been yeah, very, it's, it's, very it's as simple as just because you're a green beret, that doesn't mean you can teach. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, to teach us a phallic, the curriculum there is, is so tight knit and held to such a high standard that your average green beret can't even perform those standards, let alone teach them. Right. Right. You know? And so again, it's one of those things, man, like being a green beret at a, as instructor at a, at a schoolhouse versus a green beret operator, you're, you're talking to about two different people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an important distinction, yeah. uh, but the, the 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 general public, or even even the, even the people within the military, I would I would assume as well, can't make that distinction. They don't know no. how to do that. So it's like they just see the beret, or That's they it. see they see the the trident, the trident or the insignia, That's and it. it's like they they credit it. They'll buy that book. They'll buy that class. They'll buy that. He must be the they'll best buy that shooter, protein like, powder. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it happens to be. Yeah. yeah. This guy's a green beret. Though, like he should be good at everything. Yep. It's like no, no, no. Most green berets aren't even good shots. I'll admit that right now. Like most green berets are not good shots. They Why? got a lot of things to do. Because, they got a lot of things to learn. Shooting is like fifteen percent of our job. Hmm. When the other eighty-five percent is everything that mitigates trying to get yeah. to shooting. You know what I mean? And trying to maybe even take care of it from a long, from farther away versus being close up with guns. So there's so much of it. And then, but again, like you said, the general public doesn't have that transparency because they don't know enough Green Berets to talk to and ask these questions of, or maybe they don't live, listen to enough podcasts or whatever. But it's, it's good for them to know too. It's any field, guys. It's You could be a 20-year doctor, and it doesn't mean that right. you're a good doctor or that you should even be able to teach, right. you know, the basics of medicine. Uh, and so, again, that just goes back to vetting whoever you are trying to work with or learn from or 
you know, whatever, just vet them, just ask questions. Yeah. So this goes to the two alpha, right. And what, and what you're doing there <laughs> as an instructor and who you're, who you're teaching and, and some of the other things you're doing with your career, but I, that's how I discovered you right through, through the company, which would have been about, God, I'm going to say probably two and a half, maybe three years ago. Does that sound about right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so let's talk about like who you're teaching now, who comes to see you. Well, so in this particular moment, I've actually put teaching on the back burner. And well, there's some other things. Yeah, there's some other things we can yeah, circle back but, to. But teaching-wise, we teach all over the country. Um, we were never like a come-to-me type training company because I don't have like a venue or a facility mm-hmm. somewhere. Although that is a goal in the future is try to set one up in the Houston area. Um, but for now, we're a mobile training team. We go all over the country. In fact, we've even been abroad a couple of times. Um, but, you know... Again, our strongest footprint is probably SoCal just because I, I spent the longest time there. But I also have a very strong footprint in like Florida. Um, and then there's some parts of the country that I've lost that footprint because I haven't traveled and taught classes there in such a long time. Mm-hmm. But as far as who we teach, we teach everybody from open enrollment for civilians. Could be hodgepodge, whoever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get, you know, officers in LE that come in there. Some, and then we have our LE contracts and we okay. have some of our government contracts as well. And... Um, and so that, that's pretty much it. I like teaching civilians more than I like teaching anybody else because I look at myself as a civilian now. I, I'm not part of some agency or anything. Although I like teaching the LE guys, I always look at them and I always joke with them too. I was like, dude, if you ever come for my guns, bro, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're not, we're not friends. You know what I mean? Like those conversations I have just so I can like let them know my stance on this whole thing. Like you guys, I understand you're wearing your uniform, but I hope you guys have enough like moral discipline to say go take all these guys as guns from their houses you say say no to that uh i like to have those conversations with the the units that i train because i just like to just put it understand out mm-hmm. i also like to understand like their mentality or their thought process or, or school of thought on that and a lot of them obviously have said no nah, man we wouldn't do that we wouldn't yeah. do that i'm like okay well you yeah. say that you right. know but i like teaching civilians because those are our people like that's who we are we're all civilians here and that's who we're trying to make more capable because at the end of the day i'm not going to I'm not going to wait for the military to come save me. I'm not going to wait for the, for the cops to come save me. But my, you know, my friend down the, down the street who I go to arrange with, I a hundred percent expect him mm-hmm. to be at my door, oh, yeah. you know, in minutes. So again, that's why I like teaching civilians, but you know, at the end of the day, you got to pay the bills. So you're going to teach the only two companies that I'll never teach is, well, I say companies, uh, it's a joke, but the only two companies I'll never teach is the DOJ and the ATF. You know, Good I'll never, you. I'll never teach those guys. Good for you, man. Good for you. A lot of respect <laughs> for that. Nobody teach those guys. <laughs> Fuck those guys. Fuck those guys. Especially now. It doesn't yeah. have to be that way, which is just ridiculous, but I'm glad you it's, said that. That's I mean, cool. They chose get, their side. Yeah, you, you're right. And yeah. they have to live with that. And yeah. you, you got to check in. I, I could never be in a job where I have to check my moral compass every single day like uh, on, on that. But that also speaks probably to the, to the people that are working there. And I recognize it might be a very tough decision. Um, who am I? I'm not, I don't have your job. I didn't go to college to then wear the suit and then have the badge with the insignia that says ATF or DOJ on it. But the shit that's going on out there right now is, is, is absolutely not okay. Um, and, uh, that's a big one. I a hundred percent agree, man. I mean, look, it's happening at the top, at, at these high levels. Why wouldn't it happen to like your, av- no. your average patrol cop? Yeah. The, the guy has a family. He has pay, he has bills to pay. 
like he could put his foot down and say, I'm not doing this. He'll get fired. And then what does he do for work? Right. What does he do? How does he take how care of his family? Put food on the table, yeah. You know? and, but I, so I get, the, I get the dilemma there. But at the end of the day, man, if enough of them did the same thing, they would be so much stronger together. I agree. Than if it was just one guy that was like, no, I'm not doing this. And now he's out in the street with his family. Yeah, and it's interesting to, to you know, when we started this conversation, we were talking about being behind enemy lines, yeah. you know, as, as a culture here in California with in the community here and how strong people are. Yeah. And it's because of that. It's because they feel like they have something to fight for and nobody else is looking out for them. You know, at least that's the way we feel like our, yeah. certainly our government here is not looking out for us. Yeah. Uh, our government at the federal level is obviously not looking out for us. And you just mentioned two agencies that are coming for us. Exactly. In a sense. Yeah. So I think well, that, we should add a third to that, huh? The IRS. Oh, for God. Yeah. 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 That, uh, there's probably more than that. Yeah. You know, when we start yeah. to break it down, like, uh, but the the point of this being is that, you know, you have this, there's this sense of like, no, this is why we're here. We're doing this for a very specific reason. And there's a lot of noise. You mentioned that, that term er- earlier, but why am I really here and what would I really do? I think it's the same as like, if you're sticking a, you know, if you're carrying a, a concealed gun, like you have to have, you have to have had this conversation in your head. Like what happens if, yeah. like, am I really? Am I really ready to make that perm- that that type of decision mm-hmm. in whatever circumstance might present itself? It's not just about carrying it and feeling good carrying it um, and saying, you know, you would do this, but yeah. can you really do that? And I think that that is the same when you start to look at, the, you know, those, those agencies that you talked about right there. It's like, if I swore to protect and serve the Constitution of the United States, the fuck am I going to do if this decision gets handed down to me? How do I handle that? Exactly. Um, and... You have to answer that question for yourself. And those, yeah. are, those are the guys I, I I'm worried ta- about. I think you talked about, you brought up something like really important right now, which you brought up basically a lifestyle, right? You, you're saying the guys, people that conceal carry, do you think about the moment you have to actually draw that gun and take a life? Like, does that thought ever occur to you? Or is it something that you go through the motions with, right? As you holster that gun in in the morning and before you leave the door, do you think about what happens if I had to take this gun out and use it? And when we, when we start thinking that way, when we start thinking that way, it basically, we are adopting a lifestyle saying that, well, one, this is the last 1%, right? What can I do to make myself more capable to mitigate this 1% be, like for that other 99% that it took me to get there, mm-hmm. right? Could I verbally de-escalated? Could I even before that maybe avoided the situation? Avoid the situation. Did yeah. I have enough situational awareness to not put myself in that position in the first place, or you know, not make my put myself in a position where I may be a victim now? Uh, you know, and then can I talk to this person? Can I verbally de-escalate? How much hand to hand do I have? What if I have to get physical? Do I just go for the gun? Right? Like, what if the guy is just pushing me, and I don't know anything about fighting with my hands? I don't know anything about. Um, keeping somebody at bay using some some basic techniques, you know, at distance. Do I just go for the gun now because this guy pushed me? Like there has to be more thought behind the gun in my holster concealed versus that this is just there for me when I need it, right? What kind of an answer is this? Like, yeah. What am I, what question? Like, what, what kind of life am I actually living? Right. I mean, what kind of life should I be living versus what I'm living now? Mm-hmm. Should I not maybe, if I'm going to carry a, a tool that, is capable of taking lives, should I not then carry a tool that's capable of saving lives? Should I not have a tourniquet? Should I not have maybe just a uh, a, a basic, you know, trauma pack with me? 
you know, and then could I, could I, should I invest some time into medical training? Should I invest some time into some hand to hand, maybe jujitsu or something like that? Should I invest some time into some, into some blade work? Mm-hmm. Everything, all of that is the 99% before getting to the gun. So if you aren't, if you're carrying a gun, then I would hope that you have adopted this entire lifestyle of, of situational awareness, medical training, blade work, verbal de-escalation, physical fitness. Obviously, we need to have a little bit of wind to fight if we had to fight. Mm-hmm. All of that is a lifestyle. But if you're one of those people that just carries a gun, you holster that gun in the morning, you do your thing in the day, and you come back and you take that gun out at night, and you're not thinking about any of the rest of that stuff, you are setting yourself up for failure. Leaving a lot on the table. There's a huge false sense of security. Like I said, it's a security, a false sense of security is what you're giving yourself because a lot on the table. you have never thought about anything prior to drawing that gun or anything to right after you draw that gun. You know what I mean? Other than let me draw this gun and shoot a bill drill as fast as I can on this And video it and make sure I show my part-time on the... And that's a huge thing that I advocate for. In fact, we have an online seminar that's called Active Citizen, which is three hours long. And we talk about all of this in depth with people uh, because again, it's a lifestyle that people don't know that they should be aware of. Uh, they just think, well, let me just carry this tool like I carry my wallet, you know? It's like, no, dude, there's so much that goes into it. I know. It's, I've, I, it may have been you that I heard talking about this. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, with, with regard to this lifestyle and, 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 and how people handle this, mm-hmm. I would like to think that more people would take this stuff more seriously, but it never ceases to amaze me that they don't. And while recognizing all the things that are going on out there in the world, you know, whether it's active shooters or what was interesting was I was talking to somebody, I may have even put up a clip on this and I started getting some comments back about like, look, we don't like, does this stuff really a problem? And it's basically based on this. So let me, let me, let me back mm-hmm. up a little bit reverse. If you're, if you're carrying a gun and you're that guy that does that every morning, the way that you, you, you describe and you go out there and you're not thinking about these things, then you're putting my life at risk. Mm. Right, you're putting my kids' lives at risk. You're putting the public's life at risk because you haven't gone there. You're already creating a risk by doing this. Yes. So you're, you're bringing a weapon to the fight. You're bringing something into a situation that could create a lot of chaos and and tragedy. But I think that what I was hearing was from like the naysayers, which would be like, "Look, man, is that even a fucking problem? Are civilians really shooting other civilians and shootouts and mm. you know things like that that we're carrying concealed? Is this really a problem?" And I thought that was a really good question because we yeah. don't hear or see that. Yeah. But but what came up for me, and this is the question, is like, how many things do we not hear about or do you experience out there in your world with the people that you you work with, where this stuff is happening on a regular basis, or it is happening? We just don't hear about it. Right. That is. The good guy carrying the gun, I'm not even saying pulls the gun out and uses the gun, but because he's adopted this lifestyle, has de-escalated a situation or eliminated a threat or whatever else right. in some kind of way. Right. Um, it, I, you just don't see those stories. I mean, those don't hit because those aren't sexy, right? Well, they're also because you see how the media, you see the agenda in the media. Like you would hear about some good guy uh, you know, doing some work on a bad guy through like third hand party, like somebody read it on a Twitter post in some local paper somewhere, you know, but you're not going to see it on Fox or CNN or because what you're going to see on Fox CNN is the, is the, the black kid that got shot by cops, you know, or, or, you know, they're going to see how, 
some security mall officer freaking shot a kid because he was stealing some some detergent or something. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear all the bad things in, re- in, re- in reference to guns, not the good things. And so that all, also kind of scares people too. Like, well, I don't want to carry guns, you know? Like, And same thing with cops. Cops are like, well, I don't want to draw my gun because as soon as I take my first shot... You know, like now I'm under all this scrutiny because I was just it's doing their my head. job. Yeah. And, and so like civilians, um, civilians are, I, I you know, I, I tell civilians the same thing. Like you guys have to like think about these things because in the moment where you have to draw that gun and take shots, that is, it's too late to think about it then. Right. It's too late to be like, where's my, where can I go to cover? And where's my exit? And, you know, who's mm-hmm. with me? And. And like, because, so that's why I say it has to be a lifestyle where people think about this stuff constantly. And just because you adopt this lifestyle, doesn't mean you're paranoid. It just means that you're prepared. It just means that when you leave your house, you are saying, okay, world, I am ready for you today. Like whatever you throw at me, I'm already thinking about it. Mm -hmm. If it's me getting mugged on my way to my car, or if it's me getting mugged when I, as soon as I open my door at a gas station, uh, I'm ready for it. Why? Because I'm looking for those threat indicators, you know, and it's, it's something that doesn't get discussed a lot yeah, you don't because, see it. Yeah. because it's something that doesn't get shown a lot. Right. And also the other part is you don't see it on Instagram. You don't see it on social media. Yeah, you don't he, see, here's you don't, me pulling up to the gas station and avoiding a situation right now. Exactly. Yeah, or, not, just, or just me putting on a tourniquet of somebody. Like right. how often do you see people, no. medical videos? Not a lot. Unless it's on body-worn camera footage. Yeah. That's the only time you ever see it. Yeah. You don't see a lot of fitness stuff. You don't see a lot of blade work. You don't see a lot of verbal de-escalation. None of that stuff looks sexy on Instagram, on social media. And so what people do see on social media is the fast draws right. and the cool transitions and like the kit and the gear and the, and they see. And, and so then they're like, it puts out like this false perception, like, well, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong by doing the minimum, you know, right. like everyone else seems like they're doing the minimum. Point. You really don't know if they are or not. Because on social media, we just show you what we want what yeah, we want you to see. It's a really good point. But like, if the thing is, social media can drive this because people like us should be putting out more content as far as this lifestyle is is meant to be. Like, we should be preaching more of all this. And there are some companies that do that. Yep, there are some people that do a really good job with it. One hundred percent, man. Yeah. And I and like one hundred percent, I send people to them all the time. But more instructors need to do that because everyone right now is all about the you know, shoot the fast build drills and shoot these doubles and like, you know, this and that. It's like, and when I bring up like tactics or if I bring up personal defense or if I bring up anything else, then I catch, I catch a little flack. It's like, cause I get the same thing. Well, are civilians really just having shootouts in the streets? Well, like how many times does a civilian have to patch somebody up, you know, and stop the bleeding or throw on a tourniquet? I'm like, dude, that's not the point. That's not the point, man. Mm-hmm. That's like saying you're not going to, that's like saying you're not going to buy lottery tickets because you're scared of winning. You know, that makes no sense to me. Right. That's right. Uh, so it's a good analogy. Yeah. It's like, you're scared of winning. No. So you're carrying this stuff and you're doing this training because you should be scared of the possibility. You should be scared uh, yep. because the world is so crazy these days, dude. Like, and, and like criminals are emboldened because of politics and now they can just rob you in broad daylight and they won't even go to jail that day. Like, and you probably got stabbed and you can't even file charges because you have these DAs that are just pushing the agenda. Like, it's just a crazy world, dude. If, if, if at any moment now is the best time to really be prepared for a lot of bad stuff, 
and like take your training serious. Well, I'm encouraged because that's why we're here, like in the same yeah. spot right now in preparation for another event that helps people do that yeah. uh, down here in Southern California. But you're doing, you know, that's just what you're doing. You mentioned you were taking the, you know, a little bit of time off of the training. So I got, I got to ask you about this. I don't know if many people listening to this that know you or don't know you were aware. I mean, you did a pretty good job of promoting this, but you're recently in a major feature film. Uh, uh, called the Covenant, which, by the way, was an un, was was an excellent film, Oof. directed by one of my very favorite guys yeah. in the history of of film, and that's Guy Ritchie. Yes, we have to talk about this man. So we don't have to talk about it for very long, but no, absolutely. Uh, you know, I got it. I got a fanboy on this for a second. A great film. Loved. I love everything Guy Ritchie does. He's amazing. But talk about your experience. How the hell did that even happen for you, man? Um. So I got into consulting for Hollywood uh, when I first got to Cali. And so the very first thing I consulted for was Star Wars Battlefront 2, the video game. Okay. And so if you guys have played Star Battlefront 2, great game, great game. Uh, I did a lot of the mocap stuff with the actors. So how to hold a gun, how to move, how to roll, you know, how to, we even did some marching, you know, and it was all for like the the animated portions yeah, sure. and stuff. And then some of it obviously was for the gameplay. Um, but that's how I got into it. And then from there, I just kind of met people and like word of mouth was like, Hey, Kawa can do this, you know, reach out to him. And then people just reached out to me for commercials and a TV show. And then like another movie. Um, and the last big budget movie I did before covenant was vice. I did vice. I don't know if you guys watched vice, the whole Dick Cheney kind of, I didn't see this one, uh, George Bush movie, the one with Christian Bale and Steve Carell, like all these big actors were but anyway, so did that movie and I choreographed one of the firefight scenes for that movie and I did all the other military stuff for it. In fact, they gave me a line for that movie that never got, that never got made put, it to the movie, uh, but I still got paid a thousand bucks and I was like, <laughs> yes, let's go. <laughs> yeah, but what would it have been if you had actually made it into the movie? Oh, I don't even know, man. I've like, been through this before. Yeah, because <laughs> they're like, we want to give Kawa a line. Kawa, can you say this? And I was like... Yeah, sure. And this guy's like recording me in the scene. Like, so you to... get paid for your time. Yeah. But you don't get paid to be in the movie. So that's the performance upgrade, right? Yeah. Like, you're a military consultant, but as soon as you get a line in the movie, they have to give you a performance upgrade, which is whatever X I, number of I dollars. I did this in, uh, in the fitness business once. Uh, it's a little disclosed. I don't think I've said this on a podcast before, but I was doing basically the same thing you were doing for, mm -hmm. for a com commercial for a big fitness brand. And I was doing the training of the trainers, right? And then they asked me to do a voiceover. And they're like, this guy's pretty good, like with the voice thing. And I was like, okay. So we did that. And then they're like, hey, you want to try your hand out like in front of the camera? And I got this long story short. So I did all that, right? And I was like, I might actually be in this. So they write you a check for the time that they pay, that, mm -hmm. that you've spent, right? The plug got pulled on the commercials because there was a huge blow up between the CFO of this company and then the, the yeah. producers and whatever else. Had that commercial aired, I would have made like 30 Gs. Oh, I was so bummed. I was like, <laughs> I was like, dude, you couldn't keep your shit together in the boardroom for five minutes. You guys yeah. had to have this fight because that just cost me like thirty grand. Dude, so <laughs> much red tape. Yeah, man. it's crazy on yeah. a film set. On like, just so much red tape. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. But how the covenant came into play was so I've already done a bunch of stuff up until now, and my name's pretty much my name's out there for like the film business and like consulting. This one fell in my lap through a buddy who's a Green Beret, and. He was like, dude, he was like, I can't do this project. Can you help me on this? And I was like, sure, I'll help you. And so put me in touch with the production people and everything. And I'm doing an interview and like, they're like, yep, we're bringing you on. So they brought me on as a military, military consultant for the movie. I had actually got there two weeks late. 
So they had already started shooting oh, for really? two weeks. So there are some discrepancies that you'll see in the movie where I was like, yep, not there for that one. And that's why you'll see like an ISAF patch and you'll see a couple other small oh, things. interesting. Because they had already sourced and established all this equipment and stuff on camera. That answers a lot of questions. So when I come two weeks later, I'm like, this is wrong, that's well, wrong, this yeah. is wrong. They're like, too late, it's already established. And I'm like, oh, okay. This makes perfect. I was literally just having this conversation at the dinner table the other night, yeah. like that about some other shows and how this is not uncommon. Not uncommon. This, this at is all. not uncommon because you got a production company that's like, look, we have this locker full of shit. Like, this is what we're going to put people in. Yeah. Well, and, and then it's also, there's more to it, right? It's like because that was Spain. And Spain only has so many guns in their armory, right? We can't get like a Saab Mod M4 into Spain. But we could get a 416 and make that look like uh, Saab Mod-ish, you wow. know? And that's why they're like, people are like, why are you guys all wearing 416s? And if this is 2018, why do you have SIGs? You know, and this and that, and it's like, guys, like, you this know, is what we're dealing with this is what we have to work with. Like, plus on top of that, I came two weeks late. So a lot of the stuff had already been sourced. They had sourced it using other kind of open source Google and this and that. So they're just picking stuff off. And when I came there, I was like, this is wrong. That's wrong. This is wrong. And they're like, can't fix that. Already been established. But this is where we can't fix or we can start fixing stuff here. And that's what we did. So I fixed as much as I could in there. But some of the uniforms, like the ISAF patch and this and that and the other, him being a team star and yet being E7, also a small discrepancy, but feasible, right? E17 stars are all over the place. Um, so little things like that, right? And some other small discrepancies as well. But when I came onto the TV, when I came onto the set, I fell in on all this stuff that was already happening. So now I'm like, like a typical military consultant, I check in with costume because I want to make sure the guys look right. Show me everything that these guys are wearing. Cool, let's fix this, that, and the other. Go to props, show me the guns, show me the optics, show me the combo, show me the, the push to talks, everything you have. Same thing with set design, same thing with location, same thing with uh, hair and makeups, all of them. So I'm just going department to department trying to not unfuck because nothing was fucked up, right? Just but trying to up. trying to add some authenticity and accuracy to some stuff. Mm -hmm. Because again, these guys just source things. They're, they don't know. Um, but then it was just like, yeah, man, 16-hour days on set, shooting, filming, next to Jake, next to Dar, next to the other actors. We shot the mind scene early. So for you guys that haven't seen the movie, there's a big mind scene about, I don't know, third way of the movie in. And a lot of action, huge explosions, a lot of fighting. But we shot that scene. Um, we shot that scene. And that is where I talked to Guy Ritchie into putting a sniper on that perch. Because I was like, this is a huge place. Like, we're only six dudes. And we're doing split team ops. I was like, we need somebody somewhere. These guys are on the ground controlling these dudes. You guys are going up there doing your thing. We need somebody on Overwatch. So... When I got him to write that role in, he was like, well, you're playing that role because we have nobody else. This is how this happens. Yeah. Right? And so I was like, cool, I'll play it. I was like, don't make me say anything because I'll fuck it up. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to fuck up this Were movie. Were you just terrified? Well, I mean, like, it's Guy Ritchie, dude. That's <laughs> Guy fucking yeah, Ritchie. it's Guy yeah. Ritchie. Not to mention, he's also my favorite director. I uh, love that Since, guy. Since, like, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking uh, Barrels and all of that. Snatch is probably top yeah, five all 100%. time. Right? Yeah, 100%. So, um, but I mean, when I found out it was Guy Ritchie, there's no way I was saying no yeah. to the project. No okay, way. so he asked you to be in it. So then he was like, Kawa, you got to play that. And I was like, okay. I was like, just don't make me say anything. I don't want to fuck up your movie. 
And, uh, but the next thing I know, he's like giving me lines and like, not at the mind scene, but like I'm driving and like, and then we're doing something else and we're pulling up and having this little so tactical cool. pause. And he's like, Kawa, say this. And I'm like, oh God, so cool. So many ways for me to ruin this movie <laughs> right now. Um, but that's how it was, dude. So like we wrote that line in or wrote that character in for the scene. Cause it made sense. And then it after evolved. that, it was just like, do this, do that and do the other. And all meanwhile, I'm still kind of consulting for the movie and amazing phenomenal project man Sounds like to fun. be able to work with guy Ritch- guy Ritchie, sitting down with him every morning for a few hours to talk about the lines and the scenes and this and that and having his whole team there was just like every morning i, I was intimidated like every morning i was like what can i get away with you know because <laughs> he's gonna tell me to fuck off at some point uh, which he did i'm sure you he know because like but he says he's known such, for that yeah. but he says it in such a respectful way. he's like all right kyle fuck off now mate <laughs> and i'm like got it <laughs> leave it <laughs> But, you know, I came here to do what I did, and so we have everything figured out. Now, it's like, now that I know it's coming up for the day, it's like department to department to department. Like, guys, we need this. Last minute changes. We need this. And, like, the actors are getting, like, last minute script changes. Not for me necessarily, but just because we add some mm-hmm. whatever to it. And every day was that. It was just like, guys, you good? And then it's like all the SF actors were British, minus Jake, mm-hmm. myself, Dars from Belgium, but all the other actors that you see, they're all British. And they're like, How, how's my accent? Like, is my English good? I'm like, yeah, man, it's good. It's good. You're, like, you're... <laughs> That's interesting. I had but no idea. It was like, it was that. It was a lot. Of, and then working with the Taliban guys, because a lot of the Taliban guys were Spanish. They were Spanish actors. Uh, very few of them were actually like Afghan or Iranian, mm-hmm. you know, but those guys that were Afghan and Iranian, it was like now getting the dialect because it's like, you need to sound Afghan, bro. Like, I know you're Iranian, but we can't. Because Iranian Farsi compared to Afghan Dari is like, Iranian Farsi is very poetic. It's very, like, it just flows. Very beautiful language when when Persians speak that language. Afghan Dari is very choppy. It's very just like, you know, and so... I had to get them to st- st- stop sounding so poetic in the way they're talking and, and chop up their words and make it sound more Dari. And then we got a linguist coach that came in and then I was like, thank God, like you do this because I got so much other stuff I got to do. <laughs> what, a, what a crazy and yeah. exciting experience. That All sounds this, like a lot of fun. About two, two and a half months in Spain, just enjoying beautiful Southern Spain weather and the food and everything. And then on set, all those hours. and So cool. And then, yeah, dude. And then working with Guy Ritchie was amazing. Jake Gyllenhaal, phenomenal actor, really good guy. Very professional and very serious. Um, doesn't have time to joke around. Like, I talk to him a bunch, obviously, because I have to be there with him. But And same with Dar. But other than that, man, he doesn't talk to people. He'll say hi to you, be polite. Stays Otherwise, focused. he's back to his trailer, you know. Yeah. It's time to shoot, come out, shoot, and then go back. Sure, you can respect that. Yeah. 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 Man, that's a that's a crazy story. I had to ask you about the movie because it's only been out two months. I think it got released uh, mid third week of April, something like that, right? Yeah, the Covenant. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Covenant. We got in there and originally, got in there originally named the Interpreter. Right. So the the storyline is is Jake Gyllenhaal uh, gets it with his interpreter stuck basically behind enemy lines, and the and the interpreter through a very harrowing journey and experience gets him out, mm-hmm. and then it's it gets reversed. The role gets yeah. reversed with. With Jake Gyllenhaal's character trying to get uh, trying to get him out from behind enemy lines, uh, yeah. the interpreter out, and it's it's based on a true story. It's uh, based on true events. It's not yeah. based on a true story. Uh, that would be a cool true story if it was. So it's not like you know your lone survivor type true story right. or, or or whatever. But it is um, it is based on true events, and obviously the exit in Afghanistan. 
the way that was so fumbled and so messed up, this movie speaks to that. Now people can watch this movie and get a sense of what it was actually like for not just our troops, but like the Afghan interpreters, their families, just the overall dynamic of us working with these people that have risked their lives and their families' lives to work with us. And then we just somehow leave them there. Abandon them. Abandon them, right? There's, there's turn no our, other, there's turn no other word for that. So when you guys watch this movie... You're gonna, it's gonna hit you in the feels because you're like, dude, that's rough, man. Yeah, I remember you know? watching it just and, and hearing a lot of this because I, I try to pay attention to what's going on in the space, read a lot of books, listen to a lot of, a lot of podcasts and a lot of people. But, uh, you know, you hear about it, but the, I thought the film did a really good job of really capturing all that um, and the tragedy that's behind it and the reality of it. And then you, you multiply that by however many thousands of other people that are out there that were in that exact and are still. <laughs> in that exact same position was, uh, yeah, it definitely, it'll grab you. Yeah. It'll grab you. I think it was a well done movie for sure. It was, it, it turned out better than I thought it was going to be when we were filming Uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Way better than I thought it was going to be. And the message, the way that Guy Ritchie delivered that message was, uh, really powerful. I think. Yeah. I don't think it was so, uh, what I always worry about in going into situations, particularly when you're looking at like wartime type movies mm-hmm. or whatever is that it's overstated or overdone. Yeah. Um, but there's also a risk of understating things. Um, and, uh, to me, uh, he, he nailed it and, uh, the thing was great. So I encourage everybody listening. If you haven't already seen the covenant, go and check out our dude here. Uh, he, <laughs> yeah. I thought you did a great job, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's how it is, you know, but the, the thing with, um, anytime you're consulting for Hollywood is just remember that you're there to show them what right looks like, sounds like, feels like, you know, and all that. But there's no level of authenticity or accuracy just because it's 100% authentic. That doesn't mean that the director is happy with it because it, what it matters at the end of the day is what looks good on camera, mm-hmm. right? That's a tough balance to strike. Yeah, so there has to be like, I'm going to show you how, for example, let's move down this hallway. But if that looks boring on camera, they're like, Kyle, we got we, we to do something else. Like, can we run through the hallway? And I'm like, we would never run through the hallway. Well, can we power walk through the hallway? Well, let's, let's see, right? Let's try to make this work somehow. And so that's, you have to find that balance of authenticity, but without stepping on the creative, the creative vision of the director. At the end of the day, Guy Ritchie can tell me, or Max or one of his guys can tell me to fuck off all day, mm-hmm. you know, but not that they were like that. They were all very, their movie, yeah. very open-minded to my suggestions and so were the actors. But for people that are like, dude, what, why is that so wrong in this movie? Just understand that if the director, if there's something that the director or the directing team is, is in love with, if they think that is a critical piece of that scene, they don't care how off it looks. They just don't care how wrong it looks. Uh, they will take it because, the, again, for them, it's storytelling and, and mm-hmm. painting a picture. And it's not just like, like, oh, those are the wrong boots for that year. You right. know, it's like they don't care about those guys. Yeah. They care about the overall, you know. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, this is a movie for entertainment. It is not a documentary, right? Yeah. Of but guys like this thing. are famous for picking yeah. apart movies like that. Totally. I would do the same thing yeah, if I wasn't the I guy. Got you. And there's you a million know? civilians out there that think they can do the same. So. And so I do the same thing when I watch this movie. I pick it apart. Yeah. But I know where those discrepancies came from, yeah. you know. And for you guys. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. For you guys, it's just, I'm just giving you that transparency. Uh, the creative, the, the creative vision will always trump yeah. accuracy and authenticity. I think that's fair. I think people yeah. need to fucking hear that, man. So yeah. that's, that's, a that's good to know whether it's a TV show or a major show. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are working hard like you did and are to 
make it as great a film as possible. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's not your movie. No, and it's, I'm not. I'm not going to fight that battle, dude. Yeah, it's One is Guy movie. Ritchie, and two, yeah. I enjoy the money I'm making off of it. Yeah, why not? So, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, it's worst your, case it's scenario. Yeah, yeah, worst case scenario, I'll go stuff my face at the at the at the yeah. snack bar. Yeah, people don't understand that. You can eat from one end of the place to the other no, when, man, you're, when you're on set at you one of these places. So good. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, they treat you so good. Well, man, um, um, I, it's a good place to, to stop, and we got to get up the mountain here and get yeah. out there and start and do some training. And this is going to be like the bonus to this whole meetup today is that we're going to get to go out today and and uh, and suit up a little bit and and yeah. uh, get to learn some stuff. Or the I, I don't exactly know when this is going to drop. It'll it'll be soon, but this work up to California range weekend, you're going to be out there mm-hmm. coaching some, some sections of this thing, a uh, huge event out here in SoCal. Uh, be, be on the lookout. Tickets are going to start going on sale soon. I can't say when, mm-hmm. but uh, not, not on this one, mm-hmm. uh, but they're going to go on sale soon. And you can come out if you're in California, you'll be out there. What are you teaching at this one? Is it, has it been decided yet? What's the course that you're going to be teaching? It, it hasn't been finalized, <laughs> but like last year I taught, uh, I, I try, I, the the nighttime class that I taught was basically intro to nods and lasers. Okay. So we had everybody shooting with nods and lasers, which is fun for everybody. Everybody loves that. And and also like, you know, pistols and how we integrate all that. This year, I'm going to maintain that. So I'll still do the low light on, I think, Saturday night. And then Sunday, we haven't decided. I may go back to the shoot house and do CQB. Okay. Or I may give that up to somebody else and just put on like a regular flat range class. Cool. But don't cool. know yet. But right. the low light one for sure. Love, there's a little yeah. mystery in it, but uh, that's <laughs> yeah. what I mean. We were on the same range at the same time last year, but we we're so busy doing our own things. I never even connected with you. Yeah. Eli, Eli was up at your spot while I was down with somebody else. I was training yeah. some some other place. So. Yeah, I remember yeah. meeting Eli yeah. right on the on my range. In yeah. fact, and yeah. then I I saw you from a distance, and I was like, I gotta go say hi. And I there was just, so much of that. Like yeah. there were so many people at the end. Like when we were trying to get out of there at the end of the day on like Sunday, I. I think it was there like an extra three hours finally shaking hands with people and saying hi to people that we'd been around for 48 hours, but just never connected. It's, it's yeah. one of the best parts and the worst part about the event is I, I love having a little bit of FOMO leaving yeah. and going, damn, I missed, you know, meeting, meeting, you know, with guys like you or whatever and, and chatting, but it also just makes me want to come back the next year and, yeah. and making it happen. Well, this year is supposed to be the best year. Yeah, oh, it definitely will be. Yeah, yeah, so I'm yeah. excited to see what they're doing this I, year. I had dinner with Tony last night uh, from Axiom Training, the guy behind CRW. For those of you that don't know who he is, and you know what I've seen t- with Tony the last couple of years is just his confidence build and his um, and his excitement. You know, it's this is while it's a major undertaking and a major project for mm-hmm. him, he just mm-hmm. he just keeps you know re- fine tuning it and twisting levers and dials. And, yeah. Uh, this this year is going to be awesome. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That's what we needed. We needed an event like this in California For to bring sure. everybody together because it just makes sense. Again, the community here, and I still consider myself part of the SoCal community, is that we're just such a strong community. And now we have an event where we can all come together yep. and not have to worry about getting in trouble or anything like that. And, you know, just meet and greet and also spend time and get some good training. So if you guys or within driving distance, uh, or if you want to take a plane ride out, then definitely come out for California Range Weekend. Lots of good instructors this year, right? We yeah. have like a lot more this year. Yeah, there's there's several. I think there's either, there's I think there's eight in total. Yeah. There's like eight bays in total, plus all the other things that are going to be going on mm-hmm. over two full days. So, um, you know, it's like 16 total classes, you yeah. know, and they keep the they keep the instructor to uh, to participant ratio, you know, I think it's you know sometimes it's somewhere between maybe a dozen and twenty, and sometimes guys bring uh, guys bring assistant instructors and things like that. But yeah, yeah, have a look. 
there'll be some announcements being made, but you can always go back to the CRW site to kind of see what we did last year and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm anxious to get there. So yeah, without further ado, yeah, man, man, thanks again for coming down and spending yeah. time with me, taking time out of your day. This has been outstanding. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. Thank you for like keeping this going because I know we've been trying to do this for a while obviously, and uh, schedules conflict and everything, but I'm glad that we were able to finally make it happen. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up and I'll, uh, I'll see you in a little bit, Kyle. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Iron Sights. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can support our mission by hitting the subscribe button, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast with a friend. I'll see you on the next episode.